Hello, world. Today, my guest is Roger Reeves. Roger is a former pilot and international drug smuggler who ended up in prison for 33 years in 26 different prisons in seven different countries spanning four continents. His friends and associates spanned the globe, from the Medellin cartel kingpins George Ochoa and Pablo Escobar to Mr. Nice, Howard Marks, and the infamous Barry Seal, who was Roger's close friend and employee. In his early 30s, Roger was making over a million dollars a day flying back and forth from Colombia, and he eventually hired Barry Seal. And on the podcast, Roger gives vivid details to their relationship up to the very end of Barry's life. Roger escaped from prison on five separate occasions, was shot down in both Mexico and Colombia, and tortured almost to death in a Mexican prison. It is with great honor I introduce to you the gripping tale of Roger Reeves. All right. Good morning, Roger. And good morning to you, Danny. Thank you for being here. I really appreciate you traveling all the way from the West Coast. It's my pleasure. So to open this up, you served 33 years in prison, 26 different Twenty-six different countries. No, twenty-six different prisons. Oh, okay. Seven countries on four continents. Thirty-three years, twenty-six prisons, seven countries on four continents. That's right. Wow. (laughs) How did all of this happen? How did you end up here? Why don't don't you give people who who uh, who aren't familiar with who you are, give people sort of a brief summary of your story and who you are. All right, I was uh, I was uh, born down in St. Augustine, Florida, in 1943 during the war. Uh, my folks went down there in the war to work, and uh, I was born there. Uh, and then uh, after the war, we moved back to Georgia on a three-mule farm, tobacco and cotton, hard work. And I stayed on that farm for 25 years. My daddy died when I was young. He was an alcoholic, and... Uh, seven little brothers and sisters just like doorsteps and I went to work at 14 years old in a grocery store paying the lunch money it started off three dollars a day and the lunch money was three dollars a day and I got a a raise the next year and it was four dollars a day (laughs) so I never did have a quarter left over so I think it kind of made me uh, appreciate some money so uh, I got out of school and uh, finished school and went up to Canada I'd work in tobacco I, uh, since we had a tobacco farm we, around Ontario, Canada, they had a lot of tobacco, and the, mm-hmm. the Belgians were growing it. And I went up there, and I, I was working tobacco for $20 a day, and I went to a carnival, and I wrestled a bear in a carnival for a $500 reward that I didn't get, and the bear beat me up. <laughs> so I went to the beach the next day, and uh, there's a pretty girl on a towel, and I talked to her, and that's Mari. It had been 60 years ago. And that's your wife now? That's my wife, yes. How old were you when you met her? 18. 18 years old. Wow. (laughs) That's incredible. So we got married a couple of years later. And uh, so we have three children. And uh, I got a job on the railroad. And uh, I started making whiskey and I borrowed money. And uh, finally, she and I wound up with 36,000 chickens laying eggs. And the price of the feed kept going up. and Eggs kept going down until... 
I had to do something. So I started making moonshine whiskey and I made a thousand gallons a week. And I had four big vats, 1800 gallons each. And uh, those things blew up. I thought the revenueers had us. And anyhow, I had quite a quite a run with them shooting at me in the bloodhounds and getting away from that. And uh, we decided we might ought to leave. We were kind of ashamed to go to church, and people pointed fingers at us. And the, but the grand jury didn't indict me. They voted 12-12. So we moved out to California where I went to work in construction. And I was uh, painting and working in concrete and framing and any other thing that had hard work to it. And then I got on the fire department in Redondo Beach. And I drove the back of a 108-foot hook and ladder truck and, for several years. And uh, then we went up to Alaska. We went fishing. Had a salmon trawler up there. And then uh, we came back and went back to work on the fire department. I just took a year's leave of absence. And uh, I was hauling antiques. That was, um, I met a fella, and uh, I was buying antiques around Los Angeles, like one of the first pickers. I had my truck, I'd go and get them and take them to Antique Row and sell them. Every day I'd make me $100, $200. And so this fella says, why don't you go to Missouri? There's more antiques there than you can see. Hmm. I said, why is that? He said, well, with, back in the settlers, in the 1800s, they would come on the train to the Mississippi River. And they'd take the ferry boat across and take all their pianos and the big sideboards and the tables. And they couldn't get them in those Studebaker wagons. I didn't realize that the, the covered wagons was mostly Studebakers. Scoot this thing up a little bit closer to your mouth. All right. So we loaded up, hauling, started hauling the antiques out of Missouri back to California and putting them in auction. Mm -hmm. And I was reading a National Geographic book. It's talking about mercury in uh, Mexico was worth... It was worth 13 times more in the United States. And I said, I should go get me a load of that stuff. Mercury? Mercury. Okay. Just an article in National Geographic, just something to talk about. Mm -hmm. As we bumped along 45 miles an hour with a load of antiques. and uh, So he says, oh, that stuff is so heavy, it, it knocked a hole in the bottom of your airplane. I had a little Cessna 182 by that time. Oh, you you already had an airplane. I had an airplane. Yes. At what point did you just? <clears throat> at what point did you decide you wanted to learn how to fly and be a pilot? Oh, when I was young, I read the book Jungle Pilot, and he's a man. Nate Saint started Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and I read that book, and my heart burned. Oh, I would just love to do that, and he started Missionary Aviation Fellowship, and so it spread all over the world. These men, flying missionaries in and out, sick people in and out of the jungle, they fly medicine and he would right. he would just drop it with a cord in a bucket to him until they could cut out a little strip for him and i thought boy that would like to do that i'm not uh, made to be a preacher but i could do something good like that yeah so that was my idea uh, to learn to fly so i learned to fly at douglas georgia really yes how long did it take you to learn to get your license and everything Oh, I, I flew a long time before I got my license. I'm not one of them sticklers for it, but it took me about, <laughs> about eight hours before the instructor stepped out. <laughs> I bought a Cessna 152, and I flew that thing all the way to Nome, Alaska before I got my license. Wow. And uh, yeah, I had a hairy experience up there, chasing wolves. Chasing what? Wolves. I really? Was taking a little Instamatic camera, taking pictures of wolves, and I just got right down real slow and low, and that thing stalled on me right above the wolves and just almost turned upside down right across the tundra. I think that's just one of my lives got used, used up. Oh, my God. 
so anyway, that's how that's why I learned to fly, and that's when I went to flying, and so I just kept getting a little bit bigger planes until I got a Cessna one. one Did you ever two. think that you could make money being like a private pilot or anything? Or no, you just I just did it. You, I was you thought. Working. Working on the fire department, I had a little extra money. <clears throat> I had a painting crew and buying and selling antiques, and mm-hmm. uh, so I was just it was into chips. I bought me a little airplane, and I think paid seventy five hundred dollars for one eighty two. Those things are three hundred thousand now. If you want to buy one, how much did you pay? I paid seventy five hundred dollars for seventy five hundred dollars for a Cessna one eighty two. Cessna one eighty two. Yes. Wow. And now they're over three hundred thousand. If you want to buy a new one, of course, mine was used at that price, but they still weren't much. Mm-hmm. So he says, uh, "Won't you hold marijuana? That's the hottest thing out there. I don't know anything about it. I've heard the kids smoking it." I said, "What would you pay?" And he said, "I think they would pay ten thousand dollars for a trip down there." I said, "I'm all for it." I said, "What would they do if they catch?" You? He said, "Nothing. Probation." He said, "That thing's almost legal out here in California." So he introduced me to a fellow said, you got an airplane, you'd fly down there. I said, yeah, I'm going down there fishing all the time anyway. They don't ever bother me. Where were you going fishing? In Mexico. Were you really? Yeah, I'd fly down there on some of my days off, Mario and I, and we'd take the children down there, the baby. and uh, So we just had a nice nice life there. We weren't far from Mexico and in Southern California. Right. So uh, I went down there and did a load. And, man, I come back and... They give me ten thousand dollars in a paper bag. That was two years' pay on the fire department, to take home, and I shook it on the bed, and Mari put her hand up over her mouth and said, "Oh my, I don't believe it!" And the baby grabbed the hundred dollar bills and crawling around, and we just laughed. We didn't owe any money. We didn't do nothing, so we went out to dinner and then put it in a lockbox. So, what was that like the first time you actually flew down to Mexico to pick to to pick up marijuana? I mean, it was just picturesque. It really was. What was. I mean, what kind of people did you did you meet with, and what was was it? What you expected? Was it shady at all? Not at all. I went to a place called Jalapa Veracruz, is the uh, capital of the state of Veracruz. It's up in the mountains, and it was like Bible times. The people had like stone basins in the street, and they were scrubbing their the clothes the women were. And I went to church, a Catholic church, and I walked around and. And there was the Stations of the Cross. I'd never seen those carved, all the Stations of the Cross in a Catholic church. I understand now that they have to protect them because they're such valuable art pieces. Mm -hmm. And I was impressed with that. And then I went out early in the morning to the airport to load the marijuana. And I had my fireman's badge in my wallet. And so the old guard on duty, he was kind of suspicious of it. And I showed him my fireman's badge and he was all helpful. (laughs) Really? So then I taxied down to the end of the runway, and they met me with a van and put the stuff in. And uh, I was coming back across and didn't have enough fuel. I knew I wouldn't. I'd have to land somewhere. So I landed at a little a little abandoned strip with a little stone house at the end of it. And the man that owned the marijuana got in with me. So I put him out there, and there was a little, little boy herding goats, and his name was Lazarus. So we put the marijuana in the stone house, and I flew into, I, I forgot, one of the cities of... Mexico and refueled and came back out and sat there and had lunch with a little boy and hmm. paid it back in there and flew on home. Were you worried? Were you nervous at all? Not a bit. And you were flying and you flew down there alone? Yes. Uh-huh. But the man that owned the marijuana flew back with me. Okay. So we just, we didn't have any trouble a bit. And then at what point did he pay you when you landed back in the U.S.? Yes, they came the next day and paid. <clears throat> and then the next load, they cheated me out of it. That was all they had, so the second load, they didn't have to pay me. Really? Yeah. 
So I took him, I, I found him and I had to send a detective after him. We found him in New York and I went up there and stuck a gun in his ribs and took him down to the wharf. What? <laughs> and he was so nervous he couldn't even light a cigarette. He thought I was going to kill him. Of course, I won't hurt him at all, but I was going to scare him into paying him my money. So I took his dog. Wow. And his dog was named Leslie, a beautiful, long-haired uh, setter. And he was so upset about taking his dog. He said, take my wife, take my wife. I said, no, that's illegal. I'll take your dog. So I dog napped, and I kept the dog, and the children put bows in her hair. <laughs> because this guy didn't pay you for the second trip. Right. So anyhow, he never did pay me. So he caused so much heat till our friend out there said, give him his dog back, Roger. You're going to bring us all down. How, so how did you find it? You hired an, uh, a private investigator to, like, hunt him down or something? Uh-huh. He went up to a cabin where Bill, this guy's name was Bill, and where he lived in, in the, in the um, fireplace with some burnt papers. And he looked at it, and there was where the dog was shipped to Vancouver, Canada, and from there transshipped back to New York. Oh, my so he, God. So he copied the numbers and all down before, before he touched it, and it disintegrated, and he found out where right, the address where Bill was. Wow. <laughs> he wasn't really a private detector, but he was better than private detector. He was the guy that first introduced me to these people. Oh, he was the guy who introduced yeah, you. Right. Okay, and wow. We riding across country. Right. So then what happened? Did you did well, you have an itch to keep doing this stuff or Oh yeah, without that. Well, this is just easy. I went to see a ju- I went to see a And lawyer. you you had absolutely zero fear of being caught or getting in any kind of trouble. No. Well, of course I was I flew just at the treetop level. Sagebrush would sometimes be in my wheel wells and I was afraid of hitting a power line at night or something more so than I was of getting caught. What was the reason for flying so low? Keep keep, uh, keep off a of radar. They had oh. they had radar on the hills around there, and so they, they were trying to catch people. They catch pilots every once in a while. Okay, what year was this? Nineteen seventy three. Seventy three. Wow. So I went to the lawyer and I said, "Lawyer, what like what will happen if I get caught with a load of marijuana bringing in?" He says, "You work on the fire department." I said, yeah, and he said. You, have, you ever been convicted? I said, never had a traffic ticket in my life. No, no, not never a moving violation. He said, you'll get probation. At the most, you get a year and serve four months raking leaves on a military base. Oh, I kind of like that story. So I went and bought me a bigger airplane, a Cessna 207. That thing would carry 1,100 pounds, and I could make $40,000 in a day. How much was that plane? $35,000. Cessna 207. Right. Wow. It's a stretch 206, but it's the same engine. It's, it's nice. 150 mile an hour. Carries 1,100 pounds and go 1,000 miles. So wow. great big old tires. <clears throat> so uh, I started hauling. So I bought me a new Cadillac. I didn't, I didn't know about all this, <laughs> about making people look at you. And I had my mother and my baby sister come out from Georgia, and I took them to Disneyland in my new Cadillac. And mother said, what are you doing, boy? I said, I'm hauling pot, Ma. She says, how much you making? I said, I'm making $40,000 any day I want to go down there. She said, what do they do if they catch you? So I told her about what the lawyer said about four months at the most. I said, what do you think, Ma? She said, do you need a co-pilot, son? (laughs) Wow. (laughs) My mother was a sport. That's amazing. So did you ever bring a co-pilot with you, or did you always no, fly solo? No, I always flew alone, yeah. Okay. And at this point, you're how old? 30. 30 years old, mm-hmm. flying down to Mexico every day, making $40,000. Yeah, they got where to do about once a week, and then you had six months or something, there was no pot. 
Okay. So you had to you had to work while. It was Are going. you deal, still dealing with the guy who you had to hunt down and steal his dog? I just I just got in touch with him a few weeks ago. He he got in touch with me on Facebook. I mean, I mean, at this point, when you're when you're routinely flying to Mexico and back, are you still dealing with the same guy? Or? No, I, I we 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 separated a little bit ways. Okay, yeah, but, <clears throat> but no hard feelings. I think he just didn't want to get very involved in it. Mm-hmm. So you found somebody else you could do business with? No, I didn't even I didn't have anybody. I just did it myself. So, what did you do? You just flew down to the same location and said, "Hey, who's got pot?" Oh, he had it. This guy Joaquin is a. Uh, uh, there's a little a little river come there just north of Mazatlan in the state of Sinaloa, and it came through a cliff in the rivers and had a like a waterfall, and then there was a poor poor village called Pichilingi, starving donkeys looked like starving people, and on the bend of the river in the sand was a a 900 foot runway, if you could call it a runway, rutted, yeah, that's real short, but the Tesla 207 would make it so, but it wouldn't take off with a load. So this young because the runway was too short, too the short, too yeah. heavy. You need longer. You're right. So I, I would, I would take enough fuel down with me, and Mari and I would go to the grocery store and get little goodies and apples and toys for the children, and I'd pass out the boxes of those, and they just loved them. So every day, more and more children were showing up on that runway. They had heard of the American Santa Claus that was coming. The American Santa Claus. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, we. Uh, so I hauled many loads out of there, and one time I did it. Um, uh, I did it uh, 13 days in a row. I'd, I'd hold a load every day. And so on day 13, I had that little thing in my stomach. I have a, a warning. We all do. Like, watch out, watch out, don't do it. So I asked this guy, Joaquin, he hair lip guy, just an ugly man. I said, Joaquin, are you sure this place? Yes, I'm paying the federalities off. No problem, no problem. This is the, I mean, this is the same routine you're taking uh, every just, day. Yeah, for you're thir- you're you're used to it. Thirteen yeah. times on the on the final day. Yeah, just, well, what? No final. I was I was on a roll. They had marijuana stacked up by tons. Okay, so I'm just hauling all I can haul out of there. Right. But this guy uh, Pedro would get in the plane with me, and Joaquin would tell him where he was going to block a highway. Sometime it'd be twenty, thirty, forty miles away, and I would uh, Pedro would get in the plane with me. He was light, and we'd take off and go over and. There would be a two-ton truck blocking the highway with a rifles or machine gun on it, and about a mile down the road would be another one blocking the highway. So I was on a major freeway. Well, why now? Why did they block the highway? That was my runway. Holy shit! So no, so no cars could come, and so I'd land. They'd put eleven hundred pounds in that plane, and all like a bucket brigade off the truck. I'd shake hands with all the Mexicans with their sombreros, and I'd get back in the plane, take off over the next plug without. Oh them. my God! So we every day we did it in a different place on different highways. <clears throat> so uh, on day thirteen, uh, I had the bad feeling all night long. It was just like ooh, was, I, I I have that. I just have a gift of it. It was mm-hmm. just like oh my. And the next morning, I went down, brushed my teeth just at daylight, and. Uh, 10 or 12 men walked down with me and uh, I got an airplane Pedro got in and I fired it up and it went pow I thought a tire busted I looked over leisurely did I have a busted tire and Pedro's yelling policia 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 and I'm not at the end of the strip I'm up part way about halfway so only got about four or five hundred feet in front of me I usually just go there and taxi back down and turn around so I just put put the power to right to the firewall, cold engine and all, and just went tearing off down down the end of that strip. 
And when I got to the end of it, I was doing about 40, 50 miles an hour, and I rotated. And when I did, there was four of them, two on each side, and they just shredded that airplane with machine guns. There was 80 bullet holes in there, and they shot me down. And uh, all the w windows were shot out. I was shot across the top of my head, my knee, and my toe was shot off, nail off. And uh, What were they shooting you from? From both sides of the runway from the ground. From the ground. And see, I just run between them. And oh. Right as I went to lift off, they, they, just, spraying. they just riddled it. It looked like one of them Bonnie and Clyde cars. So uh, I, I went into shock, I reckon, because the world just turned yellow. And time slowed down. And the gasoline was just pouring in on me where the bullets had gone up into the tanks above my head. And the uh, windshield was out. And a bullet had hit uh, the strut right in front of me. And uh, pieces of splinters of it was all in my face and my chest. And uh, I just saw ahead of me in the river, the cliff was coming quick. And it looked like in the river, it was only knee deep or less, with stones, and they were as big as this table. It looked like great turtles just at the daylight was in there. And I thought, I'll, I'll crash on top of those, and maybe I can live in the water. So I just pulled the power, and I didn't have no control over the yoke whatsoever, over the elevators. And uh, it, it went, went straight in, and when it did on the first hit, the wings came off. And the second hit, the nose came and went underneath the airplane. And I'm sitting there, I guess I was knocked unconscious from the jolt. And Pedro was shaking my, come on, Roger, come on, Roger, come on, Roger. And I just stepped out over the nose of the plane right onto the, into the water of the river. And those Federales was coming, and they were still shooting it. So a couple of them hit the plane, and there was a pistol in there. Later on, I used to carry a pistol to start with, and I found it was more trouble than it was worth. But anyhow, that morning I had one. And a 9 millimeter Browning, and I just reached and pulled it out of its holster because now the radio where it was taped to is upside down so it's just right there and i popped a few caps at those guys and they ran in the rocks and so really? we took off and then i saw that pedro's foot was nearly shot off it was just uh, and it wasn't bleeding all that bad it was just like white and so i took my t-shirt off and tied it we went on up the up the mountain and there was an old donkey looked like she was 30 years old sway back and he knew her charlotte charlotte and he read her, and we jumped on that donkey without a bridle or saddle and we rode, I understand now, it was seven miles. And we came to a little house in a clearing, and there was a small man. And he was plowing, and he had a, a little horse hooked to a little cow. And the two of them with a wooden yoke across their back was pulling a little plow in some, amongst some stumps. And he was trying to make a living out of a, a burn place. Like the, the natives do that sometimes. And we went in his house, and his wife and his daughter put some cloth on my wounds and poured diesel all over it keep the flies off diesel fuel diesel fuel yes wow and so he took off and he was gone all day and late that afternoon a bunch of horses and mules come trotting up into the yard and there was a doctor there dr benjamin soso a red doctor red cross doctor and he <clears> gives <throat> a shot of morphine and uh, tetanus shots and he tried to find the bullet i still have one in my foot and he looked for it and he said we had to get to hospital and it, Pedro would die if he didn't get to the hospital. They had killed one person on the ground there. It tried to run away that morning. So they took us to a road. We rode a long way on, on them mules, and we got to a truck. It was a two-ton, ten-wheeler loaded with corn in the ear. So they dug holes on one side for me and holes on the other side for him and buried us down in that corn and covered us up, and they kept a little place for my face. 
but that was a real rough road, and every time that truck would roll one side the other, the corn would roll in on me, and they'd laugh and take it back off my face. And we went through three roadblocks, and they said they had a platoon of soldiers and over 100 of them looking for an American, shot down, believed dead. And uh, so we got to the highway after some miles and uh, went into a house and had a white pan, and they just kept changing it with water. I think I changed it 20 times before I got the blood and all the crud off of me from that episode. And uh, they got a taxi, and they got a new taxi to take me to Guadalajara because they said the roads all north was blocked. So the man was a, a little dwarf of a man, and I love this story. I was high on them morphine pills and yeah. the shot that I had, <laughs> and I laid back on a big blanket, and that little fella talked all night long. And I said, Senor, do you have a family? Oh, yes, I have a beautiful wife, Dora, and three sons. Let me tell you how I got my beautiful wife, Dora. He says, I, I live with my mother, my widowed mother, and you can see no girl would look at me, but I had my eye on Dora across the way. And uh, so one day she's playing the flute in the back of a band that's coming by, and I open the gate and pull her into the yard. My mother helped me get her in the house. And she sits in a chair, and she sits there stiff all night, and I tell her I love her and I want to marry her, but she won't even look at me. And so, Senor, the next morning, we have to let her go. Well, what could I do? <clears throat> so she went home and just at daylight, and she knocked on her door. <clears throat> and her hard-hearted father says, Get away from here, you prostitute. You spend the night with some man. You're not my daughter anymore. Go away. So she hung her head down and walked away. And that's when I went up and told her, Dora, let's talk to the Padre. And Senor, that's how I got my beautiful wife, Dora. And said, you won't believe it. But one year later, we had a beautiful boy. And I was driving a Ford, a Ford taxi. And I was new, so we named him Ford. And Senor, the next year we had another boy. And that year I'm driving a Dodge. So we called him Dodge. <clears throat> And, senor, I know you won't believe this, but the third year we have another beautiful boy. And at that time I'm driving Chevrolet, and the priest will not christen him Chevrolet. So I had to teach that son of a gun to drive before he would christen him Chevrolet. And, senor, that's how I got my three boys, Ford, Dodge, and Chevrolet. That's incredible. <laughs> wow. Yes, stories, one after the other. My book I have, uh, <clears throat> I believe, uh, 41 chapters, and many of them are just like a, two pages or 10 pages long. So on that last on that last story you told where you got shot down by the, by the Federales and you got, you, you, you got shot in the toe. And the knee and, and in the top of the foot and across the top of the head. And the top of the head. Um, after you went and got all fixed up and you were getting transported through with the corn and... Where did you eventually end up after all that? I went to Guadalajara and got on an airplane and flew back to Los Angeles. <clears throat> okay. And Mari took me to Wilmington where I got uh, medical care in a hospital there. Okay. How old were you at that point? Was that when then was that your first time actually being shot at? Uh, no. The revenueers had shot at me back in Georgia before. The who? The federal revenueers back in Georgia when I was making whiskey. <clears throat> they oh. shot at me. Eight of them shot, emptied their bullets at their, their pistols at me. In your plane? No, I was on the ground running. From oh. A, from a whiskey liquor steal. Holy shit. 
Yeah, they mean to, they mean to kill you. They don't care if they got a badge and a gun and you you don't do what they say. They'll just kill you. Right. It's like all right, we got a license to kill him. But it was your first time actually in the trans when you when you got into the transporting business, flying yeah. drugs back and forth. It was the first time that you encountered any kind of resistance. Yes. And so after you get back home to L.A. and and uh, you're with Mari, you get fixed up at the hospital. And I'm sure your wife's trying to convince you to stop doing this, right? Not particularly. I was pretty cool about it. We we went to Hawaii, and I had to put my foot up in a on a crutch, so I had to keep it higher in my head for a month or two. That thing throbbed, <clears throat> and so the children would bring me pina coladas at the hotel in Hawaii, and then we went to. Um, How bad did your foot get messed up in that shot? Not that? bad. It just took took the toenail off of the top of the big toe, and uh, one slug got into the foot and went right back at the joint, a, sh- a part of a bullet. Mm. Okay. So I, I wasn't hurt bad. I mean, to be Nick, to be, you could have been killed just and easy. A, and one scraped right across right the top across of your top head. Of my head. Yeah, I got scar right across where it went across the top of my head. <laughs> wow. And so, uh, so we, then we went to Dubrovnik, Yugoslavia, and we rented a rented a little Volkswagen thing. My foot was stuck out the window, so it was above my head in a in a military boot, all tied up. And I had my Chevis Regal between me on ice, and Mari's driving, and. She's going fast in that little Volkswagen convertible, and he's almost on two wheels going down towards Albania. And the Russian troops come out, or the Eastern Bloc troops halt. So they explained that we passed a certain path up the way 10 kilometers, and we got here too fast, so you're speeding. And it's going to cost you 500 dinars. And Mari's laughing, trying to take that pictures. And I said, 500 dinars? You have to take her to jail. Well, she straightened up right quick over there. <laughs> <laughs> and uh so then i i paid it was five dollars a hundred to one. Oh, okay <laughs> <laughs> so that's what, that's what we did and then i came back and i bought a twin engine a twin beach that belonged to the beach boys it was a famous plane and a I started, twin engine what when it tw- a twin engine beach craft okay. they call twin beaches or beach 18s Okay. And I bought 12 of those in my life. Is that, that one of those seaplanes that lands in the water? No, it's okay. a, just a big, tw- uh, it's like a, oh, it's a big, it's a big twin engine plane with radial engines, great big round engines on front of it with the, like motorcycle, air oh, okay. engines. So they were wonderful planes. Is that the biggest plane that you had owned so far? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. I felt like I was really, really into big times. Mari was <laughs> in Atlanta and I, I bought it in, uh, I bought the plane in, uh, Wisconsin. So I flew down to Atlanta to pick her up. And they were saying, I remember the day, November 797, Juliet Fox truck. Keep your speed up 180, 747 over to your right on runway, such and such. And wow. I thought, boy, I'm in here. And I landed in taxiway and You're came. You're flying up. with the big dogs. I'm how bad now. I was just kind of had a smile on my face. And so I taxied <clears> a long <throat> way and went up to Hangar One. And they rolled out the red carpet. And Mari walked out there and he's come out with a Surrey and got in the plane and we flew away. So. That was a, that was a that was a step up. Like I should have been flying a seven forty seven from a. Wow, <laughs> that's incredible. So what happens next? Well, I flew that thing every every year. I just keep I tear them up. One bogged down, another one. I hit the end of a, a ditch in the night landing, knocked a runway. Uh, so you immediately of, start taking that new big plane to make to do keep oh, doing more yeah, shipments. Now, now I'm making. Uh, what was I making? About eighty thousand dollars a trip. Okay, going to the same spot? No, we do different places. Okay, but um, I even went to Colombia and uh, Panama and, and uh, Jamaica. 
I like the I like the one in Jamaica. Uh, I had uh, the fireman down there would load me. Oh really? Yeah, and I'd get at night and uh, after midnight or something, and I would uh, I would taxi the, the taxi was almost two miles long there at Kingston, and I'd go to the end of it and I'd say uh, Kingston Tower, uh, whatever my number was. I have a uh, fire a cabin fire lights up, and uh, boy, all of a sudden the fire trucks would come out of the station and come down. And they'd throw a ton of pot right in the fireman wood. Wow. Now, we got it fixed now. Thank you, Kingston Tower. Not take off. Wow, that's <laughs> awful creative. I think they was all in on it, but it covered everybody. So you weren't always landing on highways, stripping no, highway? No, no. That was, well, that was the only time I did it to that spot. Okay. Yeah, sometimes I landed at military bases, all kind of stuff. Right. Yes. So, so you continued doing this... Day in, day out, making eighty thousand well, dollars a day, no problems, no, no. Oh, I'll probably during the season, I'd probably get over two weeks because I'd wait on my money, and it had it wasn't just automatic. Right, right. Yeah. Hmm. So, how long does this last before ten years? This lasts for ten years. Yeah, with no hiccups. Oh, I had lots of hiccups. <laughs> I wrote a whole book of them. I mean. How long does this last before before or the police got on to me? Before, some, before something else happened, not not like necessarily before you're arrested, but like the story of. I remember there's a story where you're flying and you have to make a landing and your 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 tires get stuck in the mud, and then you end up getting stranded out in the jungle. That's that's one of my favorite stories. Let me tell that story. How did that happen? This episode of the podcast is brought to you by Raid Shadow Legends. It's been brought to my attention that a lot of people like to hate on their ads. But guess what? They got a lot of money, they got a cool-ass game, and I don't see y'all paying for this state-of-the-art podcast studio. Shadow Legends has millions of players and dozens of sick-ass characters. When I first opened up this game, I was truly stunned by the graphics and the artistry. And they've just introduced an entirely new playable faction called Shadowkin. As you can see, the Shadowkin are heavily inspired by the mythos of medieval Japan, along with a load of Eastern Asian influences. They got ninjas, samurai, and a whole host of mythical badasses. They've only just arrived, so get ready to meet new members as they arrive in-game. I would highly recommend Yoshi the Drunkard. Rage just passed their two-year anniversary, and this month, they're releasing a new batch of epic and legendary champions, which look pretty amazing. They're also releasing their second version of the Doom Tower, but also two brutal-looking bosses, the Celestial Griffin and the Eternal Dragon. If you want to get a huge head start in Raid, all you got to do is hit the link below, and you'll get a free epic champion, Jotun, 100k silver, 50 gems, and three ancient shards. All this treasure will be waiting for you here. These rewards will only be available for the next 30 days and only for new players. So hit the link below, and I'll see you in the game, brother. Uh, I went down. And, and was I, this, and what plane? Was, I mean, I'm sure, this, this is a, how many planes did you go through over tw- this 20, 25 different planes. 25 different planes. Yes, that I can remember. And out of these, out of the 25 planes, like, what happened to most of the planes? Were they crashed? Were they, no, were they shot no, at? Most of them I'd sell and buy something different. Okay. So just moving around. But it was, I guess I, I must have tore up, I think, four that I tore completely up. Four. Yeah, and one of the pilots had tore up another one for me, so it's five, I can think. When of you that. say tore up, what do you mean by that? You just, just um, crashed them? Just crashed them, yeah. Oh, wow. <laughs> Finished. Okay. Oh, one of them was bogged down in the sand at the end mm-hmm. of the runway, and here comes the helicopters. You run off and leave it, so you, you just You just abandoned the, the plane. After you, ain't nothing else to do. Jesus. 
Okay, so okay. where were we? We're talking about the the, the story where your your plant uh, you tried I, to land it, and I had bought a beautiful, beautiful <clears throat> DC three. I mean, museum piece. I believe Union Oil had owned it, and it was lovely. The the pieces where you in front of the seat let down with exotic wood carved in different colors for the countries. I hated to take that interior out, but I did. And I went down to Columbia, and uh, I had to wait uh, wait on a strip for time to go because I was over in the gorilla country. And while I was waiting, I was I went over and I went to sleep under a under a tree. There was four of us. I had a co-pilot and the man that was hooking me up to it, and he had some other fellow supposed to be nowhere to go. And I was in a hammock asleep after lunch. And I was under a tree, and I just heard a terrible roar. And I woke up, rolled out of that hammock, and I looked up into the ass end of two military jets going straight up with afterburners glowing. And then they turned around just like they would on an air show, and they come up the airstrip and just tore it up with 50 caliber bullets. And I said, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I jumped out of that, and I ran for the airplane. And I just gave the guy $80,000, and he took off in the truck the other way. I should have went with him. But I was thinking about getting out of there. So I got in the plane, and uh, I uh, I took off, and the co-pilot got in with me. And uh, the two fellows, and we had about 10 or 12 barrels of gasoline in the, in the uh, back in the baggage area, or where the seats used to be, I don't know, mm-hmm. in the cabin. And there's 55-gallon drums of aviation fuel. So I took off, and uh, the two jets got right beside me, and, the pilots were so close, almost like you and I just, and they kept telling me to go to Via Vincencia military base. Were they telling? How were they telling you on the radio? Or? Uh, no, they was pointing towards it. They didn't. They, no, I didn't you could the see them that yeah, close. Right. They, oh yeah, we were just. They were, they had their wingtips over my wingtips. Jeez. They want me to go to the military base. They're pointing at it, and <clears> I just put up the old hippie sign and shook my hand at them. I didn't think they would shoot me. So they just kept swarming on me, and I kept slowing that DC-3 down until they were just standing on their tails, burning all kind of fuel, black smoke coming out of their tails. Oh, those planes aren't meant to go that slow. No. So, and anyhow, they kind of went under me, and they started shooting them 20-millimeter cannons. Boom, 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 boom. Just shake the airplane. So I pushed the nose over so they couldn't get under me. I'd fly treetop level, and later on they said that I tried to crash into one of them, but I really didn't. I didn't know it. So... uh Later on, they come and they, they uh, shot holes in the tail with 50 caliber just with a sweep, zip, and just put a few in. And, uh, oh, boy, that got my attention. And then they, then they shot up the left wing tip. And I said, oh, my. And there was, a, there was a, one of them left, I guess, for fuel. <clears throat> so there was a black rolling clouds ahead. Mm-hmm. Well, wait, first off. Thunderstorm? First, first off, I couldn't get my wheels up. I didn't take uh, on a DC-3. They have... Uh, pins that you stick into struts so that if the hydraulic collapses the, the plane won't go down all the way on the ground okay so it's just like a strut goes up and down and i'd left those pins in i got in to go so fast oh, so okay. i uh i it was a big pasture up ahead so i landed and it was rougher than it looked and the and the uh fuel caps popped off all over the place and uh so on the World Series baseball game, it, it interrupted this baseball game to tell you that American DC-3 has just been shot down by Colombian jets. This is the first plane that's been shot down on Reagan's new war on drugs. And then uh, then in a minute it says, up, he's up, up and away. <laughs> we'll keep you posted. I took off again. 
This was in the middle of the World Series World that you were Series getting chased baseball. by these Colombian fighter jets? Yes, we have got, uh, copies of that uh, transmission, yeah. Uh, There's actually like a recording of it? Yes. During the World Series? Uh-huh. Wow. So. Uh, that would be a cool thing to find if you can. I would. I, I think I got, my friend Jerry's got a copy of that. Really? Yeah. Okay. So uh, we um, went on and then I went into these, boil, took off and I went into these boiling clouds and the, the clouds stick close to the mountains in the tropics. And those mountains go up 20,000 feet there in that part of Columbia and the Andes. And I was afraid to go in much further, so I, I went on up to about 20,000 feet, and I started getting some ice. So I came back out again, and there was that jet right there, boom, boom, boom. That's your plane? That's it. Wow. <laughs> was it all metal like that, too? All, like, shiny metal, like uh, one of those uh, those Airstream that, bands? Yes, that one was, but they, uh, uh, that one. That I thing is beautiful. One was a blue and white one. So, uh, um, where was I? Oh yeah. So I mean, boom, boom, boom. He was sh- shooting at me again. The pins, the pins uh, are in the struts. You forgot. Yeah, I already, I oh, got the, the fuel caps popped off again with no, no fuel caps on top. Oh, 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 you let you crash landed. No, I just landed on a pasture, just straight of just a big cow pasture. Okay. Those things got huge tires, big as a semi truck. So they okay. land stuff like that. Okay. That was rough. I mean, it was up and down and. I got out and took those pins out and took off again. Holy shit. <laughs> so, but I was afraid that he was going to hit one of them tracers, shoot through the fuselage and hit right. that, that fuel. I'd just be a, uh, or hit the gas tanks. I'd just go up in a ball of flames. So, yeah, I was, I was serious about it. So when I went back in, I thought, okay, I can't get away. And the place, plane was icing up real bad at that altitude. So I just kicked it over into a stall, into a spin, spin right down to about, 2,000 feet, and I just came out under it. It was just beautiful down on there. So, okay, explain that again for people who aren't familiar with uh, with flying and right. aviation. So you took off again from the cow pasture, yes. and you flew up to how hot? 20,000 feet? 20,000, I suppose, about that. Yes. And that plane wasn't made to fly that high? Well, to go that high. but You need oxygen. Ice, it, yeah, but uh, you can stand. You're not supposed to go 15,000 feet without oxygen, but right. you can stand for a while without it. For sure you can. Right. You lose your... Um, you get fuzzy. Okay. And so but what was the reason that you, you purposely stalled the airplane vertically? Oh, to get away from that, to get away from the jet. I was going to leave him up there. So I just stalled it. And when you stall one, you you, you put it up into a stall and put it, let it fall over on one wing. And it's like a falling leaf. It'll just spiral. And it'll spiral. And it's just almost go down as fast as you if, as if you dropped it. I mean, wow. it really goes fast. It's like it's falling on one wing. Is this something that you had done before? Like, I mean, this oh, yeah. seems like a crazy maneuver to try. No, people learn to do that. You, so you learn this when you're... Oh, yeah, I think a lot of people learn to spin. And and the reason that you stalled the airplane was to get off of his radar or... Oh, just, just to get away from him. Just, just do just, something maneuver real quick. Just so, like, out of nowhere, you stop and then drop, and then That's he would right. lose you. Okay. Well, I didn't know that he would, but he did. Right. So I got away from him, and, I, and now I feel bulletproof. All right. Your adrenaline's pumping. I want, I'm going to go get that load of marijuana. There's three tons waiting on us down there, but we can't go back to the gorillas because they done run us off. Right. we got to wait till about dark to get there. Right. So I'm uh, flying along the Guaviare River. It's way on down in Colombia, closer to Brazil. And uh, It's on the same flight? Yeah. This is right was, after? That's where I was supposed to go to start with, but okay. we we waiting at that other farm right. until we could go in the evening to to the gorillas. Right. <clears throat> So I see a, a long grassy strip. It looked like it's 20 feet above the river. And I said, I got to find a spot where we won't have enough fuel to fly all afternoon and then, and then fly home. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
And so on this grass, I guess it was about waist deep, and I just I just touched the wheels down lightly, and I made a half a mile strip, and the wheels are 18 inches wide, I guess. And the first row, it looked good, and the second row, it looked bigger, and the third row, and I went four or five times and put a little more weight on the tires each time, and it was hard as a rock. And so I told So you kept circling and going and, down, and go, touching and down. And, and going. To and, make, you were making your own runway. Right. So, wow. So I did it, and uh where was, did you did you learn how to do this? Is this something that you learned? Like you, no, but on the on the farm and a tractor, you do all kinds of stuff to get there. it. Didn't you know? It looked like it was smooth, fuck. but what I didn't know, and so I had the co-pilot's name Al, and so when we was almost coming to a stop, I said, "Get your feet off that brakes, Al. I don't have my feet on the brakes." And what has happened? Those that thing weighs thirty tons, and uh, on those two tires, they were breaking through the crust. It was like. Oh, I guess about eight inch is deep, a real hard clay like, and beneath beneath that was soup where the water had stayed. So the wheels went through, and it just started slowly doing a handstand until it went right straight up, and the nose and all just came in slowly on us, and we fell in between the seats to save our lives because it was collapsing on you. The nose was just, and the plane was coming up on its tail just like this year, just like that, and it stopped right straight up and down, ninety degrees. You couldn't have put a, a a ruler on it in his <laughs> <laughs> and the two big engines you see those big engines they held it up yeah and uh so i just undid the uh emergency uh hatch and stepped out in the grass and al came behind me and we reached in and got our suitcases now the two guys back up in the in the fuselage they got kind of banged up with all them drum cases and it's 100 feet not 100 feet but it's high up there to that door i mean high so they tie a couple of the ho- fuel hoses and they shimmy down <laughs> and we set out walking unbelievable man and that was uh that's when i they went down the road and i went through the jungle so you're I in the said, middle of nowhere in Colombia. yeah and i said listen i'll eat snakes in this jungle for a year before i go down the road after the jets had done what they did and what, right. what we did and so I went through the jungle, and after 11 days, I came to a place. I kept asking the Indians, Dondius Diavions, where are airplanes? Loma Linda, Loma Linda, where is it? Laos, it's far. <laughs> and I kept going. Where are airplanes? Where, where, where can I find an airplane? Okay. Where, okay. In Spanish, Dondius Diavions, aviones. So I was speaking to the Indians, and I eat brown sugar and drink the water, and I had a, a St. Paul bag from the cleaner plastic and i'd put the brown i bought a block of brown sugar and i'd put that water in it and i get along pretty good on that huh uh, just brown sugar and water brown sugar and water for some days when i didn't have anything to eat so <sighs> i uh finally i came to a place and uh wow what is this place it looked like hawaii world war ii green roofs a <clears throat> pasture a nice long runway several airplanes a tower mm-hmm. and i knocked on the door i said what is this place what how did you get here my name is katie sue that a lovely voice i said i'm touring we don't get tourists here <laughs> so uh what is this place you don't know this is loma linda headquarters for missionary missionary aviation fellowship for the amazon so god just tapped me on the shoulder the same people that I had learned to fly, these are the people that I went to their oh, place. Wow. And one and one of their pilots with an old missionary from Canada flew me out the next morning, and we flew to the same military base where they tried to get me to go. And a policeman reached in and got my bag out of the out of the airplane and put it in a taxi. Wow. 
and the other fellas went on to prison for some years down in they went to they went to prison oh yeah and i knew they would go in for <sighs> sure i knew they would go in i said come with me please wow and that was the part where i remember in the book there's a there's a specific part where you guys are in a jeep yes. and you're riding through the jungle and you see there's a checkpoint and, you, and they That's all right. went through the checkpoint they thought they could pay them off yeah and you got out of the jeep and you walked the and other we, way we went some ways to start with that first first day or second day we got a jeep to take us mm -hmm. and so we went i don't know 20 30 miles so it was it at that checkpoint where they got there yeah, i'm sure it was i never talked to him so yeah i saw one of the guys in prison mm -hmm. he got real mad with me trying to beat me up really <laughs> because i'd left him down there i did you fool <laughs> so at what point at what point in your life there's a chapter about the the creation of the medellin cartel yes now, was that the party that you went to yes. off the airstrip that was supposedly all of the drug gangs around Colombia coming together and forming the cartel? What had happened was, the way I understand it was, it, <clears throat> there was um, 10,000 people killed down in Colombia, killing each other. The price of cocaine was $10,000 a kilo in Colombia at that time. It was $50,000 in the United States. And... One fellow have 10 or 20 kilos, and he'd give it to another person to take to a, say, oh, I got a pilot, or I got a way to get it there. And they would look in the paper, and, oh, in New Jersey, I see 40 kilos is busted. Oh, I'm so sorry, senors, yours was busted. Bang, bang, bang. Of course, he was being ripped off, and he knew it, so he was killing them. Right. So um, the Ochoa brothers and Pablo Escobar and a guy named Gaucho, and the Mexican, uh, several other ones, they got together and says, all right. We will, we will form a, they didn't call it a cartel, they just like an insurance. If, if we, we will send it to the Mexico, to Miami for you for $10,000 a kilo. If it gets busted anywhere between here and your man in Miami, we will replace it in Colombia. So you can't lose. But it's going to cost you $10,000. $10,000 just to get it to Miami safely. That's right. So they, was, so they got inundated with 100 tons of cocaine. So they were they were like uh, an insured transportation company. Exactly. And I'm their pilot. All right there at the beginning of it. I was there. So you were there at that party. I was that, there at that that party. purpose of the creating this alliance. Well, I don't know if that was a purpose of they, they they reached some kind of agreement at that time. But you had no idea when you were no, going there. I didn't know. I was just down there trying to get some work. Did you did you meet any of these guys? Any of these like big time uh, Oh yeah, drug? I met all of them. <laughs> you met Escobar was there? No, I didn't see Escobar at that party, but I, I saw a lot of the other ones down there. And I got a job. The Ochoa brothers? No, they weren't there either, but they were behind it. Okay. They was police chiefs. They was stand-up comedians. They was actresses. They was uh, all kind of uh, all the people. that. These I, were all lower level. I don't know. They're pretty big. There's one guy that I did the first load. He had got caught with a, a ton of cocaine in Columbia, and, and 16 judges were murdered, and he was rather nervous. Wow. And I did a load for him, and I didn't like it. The man I gave it to got shot in the stomach. It took a while to get paid, and I just said, I don't want to fool with those. So then, okay. All so right, what? I'm, I'm, okay, let me just tell you. I'll tell you how it happened. Okay. So I, I back up and tell you a little bit. I, um, I had sold an airplane to a woman from Bolivia, a Sonia de Atila. She was like a black widow. I understand she had a lot of people killed, and... Um, I sold her an airplane, and she wanted me to fly base from Columbia up, but I, I didn't deal with her. But through this, I met a, a man named 
Jaime, Jaime Correo. Brilliant man, kind of like Churchill. Um, beautiful apartment overlooking Medellin at 20 floors up. And he was a drunk, but he had cocaine and lots of it. He had a lovely wife. They were older people. And he says, yes, I'll pay $5,000 a kilo. I can get you all you want. So in sachets, this woman from Bolivia, and she kisses him on both cheeks, and she has fur, rabbit fur coats and boots. And so uh, <clears throat> I have this lawyer with me uh, that's introducing me, Roberta Davila, Davila from Bogota. And uh, she says she's going to the United States to buy a plane. So he winks at me, and he said, Roger, over here's got some planes for sale. And so she looked, yes, and so, uh, yes. And so he's doing his fingers like this. <laughs> so I, I tell her, yes, I have a Queen Air. Oh, Queen Air. She likes the name Queen Air. <laughs> for her. Anyway, I have the plane <clears> brought <throat> down, and I have to go to Colombia to get my adieu to Bolivia to take her in a trip, her entourage to to get my money. And this is a gruesome story. Anyway, we uh, land so there. So is the Queen Air the plane that you guys fly there? I, yeah. I, okay. I, I, had, I had several Queen So you take her there to get the money so she could pay right, you for it. So, uh, so uh, it's just a interest story. So uh, we land and, oh, they just bow to her, the police and all, and they get a limousines with flags on it from Bolivia, and they, we get into cars, and we go through town, and we go out to the water tank, and there's look, something, a marble house that looks like a mausoleum with a, with a razor wire fence all around it. Wow. <laughs> like it's a prison within itself. Jeez. And they open the gate, and the, and the helpers are all crying and red-eyed and... and what is, what's the matter with you people? I, I, she's just really nasty. Your lion ate the baby. What do you mean leaving a baby on the floor in front of a lion? She had a cougar in the house. I went in behind her, and there's that cougar with blood on his mouth, <laughs> diaper and shit and blood all in the room. What? Yes. Oh, my. And she hugs the line and t runs all the people off. You idiots, you idiots. I never want to see your stupid faces again. And the lion just ate the maid's baby. The maid's baby? The maid's baby, yeah. Holy child shit. So I got my money and got on out Are of there. Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> and uh, James Clavell wrote the book uh, Deep Cover, and he also wrote the the big white lie, the CIA and the crack cocaine epidemic. And it's got a, a couple of, I got a couple of mentions in it. One of them says that I was in more, more, more DEA files in Noriega. And, uh, who is, who wrote the book? Uh, James Clavell. James Clavell. The same one that wrote deep cover. He was okay. a DEA high up in the CIA tried to kill him for exposing him about the crack cocaine. Okay. So he wrote the big white lie, the CIA and the crack cocaine epidemic. <laughs> They developed it and put it in every, every city in the United States on one weekend. So. The CIA? Yes. What's the story behind that? I don't know. They just wanted to sell their stuff, I suppose. Wow. I mean. So he said that you were on more DEA reports than Noriega? Yes, and then he's asking her if she can find me and says, uh, we've been looking at him for five years. He's on the 10 most wanted list. And if, if you can tell us of anywhere to find Roger Reeves, we'll give you anything you want. That's, that's in the book, The Big White Lie. Wow. So you sold this lady your plane, and then 
<laughs> this fucking lion eats a baby. And the, and then, so at this point, what at what point do you become aware that America is looking for you? Oh, they weren't the looking. DEA oh, or the CIA. They, this was years later that this okay. happened. I'd, uh, okay, so I hold. And how much money are you making at this point after you sold, sold her your plane? I'm not making much money at all. I okay. mean, I'm in fact losing some. I'm losing a pretty good bunch of airplanes and different different reasons. I'm not I'm not doing very well during those few years there. Okay, about early '80s, it was uh, kind of a dry time. Mexico had got so hot, and I'd, I'd been shot up down there and tortured in a Mexican prison till I I didn't want to go to Mexico anymore. Well, and you you when did this happen? You were you were tortured in a Mexican prison? I was tortured almost to death. Would you let me tell you about that? I'd like to tell I'd like you to tell me about that. Yeah, please, Roger. <laughs> Oh, and this and is this before or after? Um, oh, this is the, the Medellin oh, cartel was formed. Oh, before, before. This is, okay. this is why I didn't go back to Mexico anymore. The couple, couple of episodes happened down there that I that was not healthy. Okay. Uh, yeah, please tell me about that. Story. Anyhow, I was arrested in Mexico, and uh, by seven agents, and I won't get into that long story where I knocked one in the head and got away from all of them with the bullets flying, and got away. <sighs> But I had a pilot coming down, an older gentleman, and he landed at Hermosillo at the International Airport, and he was supposed to land five miles beyond at a cattle ranch, a, a feedlot. And he just, I don't know why he did it. But anyhow, he had my phony name and my room number in his pocket. And he had $5,000, and the federal, he tried to take it from him, and he wrestled with him. No, no, Roger said, give it to so-and-so. So anyhow, they arrested me and put me in prison down in Mazatlan. And they done a number on him up in Hermosillo, and he told. So they want me to confess. <clears throat> so I just can't believe it. I haven't done anything. I'm just in a swimming pool, and I'm in my swimming shorts, and I get handcuffed in the pool when the guy shakes hands with me. Where, like a house or something? No, in a real nice hotel. A real nice hotel, okay. So they take me to the prison, and I sit there, and I sit there, and, I mean, it was miserable, and it was so hot. And uh, after about three days in that little in that cell, we just were all the drug addicts and drunks are thrown they take me back there to the torture chamber and they decide i'm going to tell and they hold my head under a gaseous water until i can't stand it any longer and then you just fight like crazy to come up i mean it burns you daylight they time. held your head underneath underwater yeah it's like a tub and it's got some kind of uh bubbly it's if you inhale it it will make you nearly explode your head okay it goes up your nose any after one time of that you it take four of them to hold you down wow so anyhow, I had that, and then I was beaten all over till I was just yellow and black. What were they asking you? Were they trying to get anything out? Or they, sign, were they just sign the papers, and it'll all be over. Sign it, it'll be over. They grab your hair and shove it up. Sign the papers. So what uh, were the papers for? Just to confess that you were a marijuana smuggler and okay. that you're going to get six years in prison. Okay. And I thought, well, if you don't sign it, I knew <laughs> they can keep you two years for right. nothing. Right. But uh, so. Uh, they give the, um, um, they they uh, the room was about five foot square and fourteen feet high and it was hot. There's a little spot on the door about that big. And they brought a man in. He's a black man, and he was wrapped in. Uh, he was frozen and he was wrapped in newspaper about inch strips around, just like you'd wrap something like a mummy. And you're completely frozen. And they stuck the ice hook in his rib. He must have been used over and over again, and they hung him on the wall. And as he thawed out, his eyes, the water run down his face, and it looked like he was crying. 
And then, of course, the water, the formaldehyde ran out of his orifice, his other ones too. <laughs> and the old paper come running off of him, and later on you could see his liver where it's pulled apart. And he'd open the door, you next, son of a bitch, you next. And so anyway, that didn't scare me so bad. I'd butchered large animals all my life, but I didn't, the, the smell was awful with that formaldehyde puddling on the floor. And the floor it didn't bother you that much. Well, <laughs> oh as God. far as liver and a dead man, it just that that didn't scare me. It's just okay, like, all right. It's, I didn't like it, but it was no more than if you had a whatever. Yeah. So and I had to sleep. And that floor was filthy, and on the wall <clears> was dried blood where they that was just one of the room that they hurt people in. They kill you back there. So I went to sleep, and I put my head down on the bottom of that door. To breathe like that, and I'm breathing the fresh air from that side, but I'm getting a formaldehyde over close to me, and I went to sleep. And I had, I know where Walt Disney got some of his cartoons from. I had pink flying pigs and horses and all kind of colorful animals flying around in my, in that state of mind from from breathing the formaldehyde. I was high oh, or something. Really? And so then when I woke up and I saw that dead man hanging there, it took a minute to figure out which was a nightmare and which was real. I had to kind of pinch myself to see which, where the right. reality was. Right. And uh, then they took me out and they bent me over naked and buttered my rum bum and packed it full of hot chili, a ground chili. And I'm talking about screaming and talking ugly. I did some of it. And I looked at their faces. If I can find you, I will kill you if I can get out of here. Oh, my God. And then uh, so just one day uh, uh, after after that, they put me back in general population for a few days. And, and you I, didn't sign anything, obviously. I didn't, of course, I didn't sign it. I would have died for it. Signed up for six years for nothing. I just didn't right. do it. Uh, so back there, I got a word out and to Mari and to some other people. And then one morning, they just come said, come, come quick. And they took me out the back door of the prison. And they put me in a pickup truck, brand new, and it had a horse's head on the door. And they sped through the streets of Mazatlan, and they went to a bank. And uh, I went in, the banker spoke English. And he said, listen, Joaquin, that's where I got sh shot down that morning. Mm -hmm. And that's the load I went back after, mm -hmm. uh, has given Roberto the $17,000 that you paid for the loan. And he has paid it for the to get you out of this prison. Are you satisfied with that? <laughs> Don't ask, man. <laughs> so I went to the hotel where Mari was, and we got on the 747, and I didn't believe I was out of there. I looked terrible. How many days were you there? About three months. Three months. Yeah. Jesus. And so I got out of that place, and uh, when the when the uh, tires of that 727 was a brand-new plane, I just couldn't believe they are not going to come get me again. I was... I was <laughs> And the wheels went up, kaplump, next stop, Los Angeles. I was like, wow, that was on the 4th of July, 1974. After that, I, I, I got to say, man, I would have been, like, ready to call it quits. I didn't I didn't want to go back to Mexico anymore. That's no. one reason I kind of quit. I had another encounter that was bad there, too. So uh, after the, after several of those encounters, okay, I uh, I decided to go to Columbia. Columbia, they don't they don't treat you as bad if you go to prison there. They're more professional. More professional. You didn't go to prison. You just had professional people loading you and had good gasoline and okay. We, we, they had know, a better operation oh, going. They were these other people were were peasants that you know someone maybe couldn't even read and write. It had something going. Oh man! At, so, at what point did you meet Barry Seal? I'd been flying uh, flying cocaine, 
and uh, Mari and I decided we'd, or I decided we'd look for a place of it was in Honduras. Uh, so we flew down. Look for a place, uh, a to, place a, to live, a, 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 a ranch, a place of kind of a hideaway, a beautiful place in the mountains, so we could have sort of have a place. And I had all this money. You were going to purchase a place, uh, a, a, a ranch, a, a ranch. Okay. Uh, so we flew down uh, to Honduras, and uh, oh, we we did go to a beautiful place, and uh, but we decided not to buy it. It was just too too remote, but it was just beautiful. So we came back to San Pedro Sula. And our clothes is all muddy and dirty from a week up there on that ranch and fooling around by Lake Azul. And uh, so we took them to the cleaners, and he said, I'll have them ready tomorrow afternoon. Of course, they weren't ready. Well, okay, first thing tomorrow morning. So Mari had the, the children with her, with us. We had the three children. And uh, I said, well, you go into the airport because it's easier for me to get out to New Orleans on a just one of us, if, if but if all of us miss, it's going to be hard to get out. So she went on to the airport, and I went after the clothes. Of course, it was slow getting. I got on an old taxi, and I had a wad of them in plastic bags, and I give the guy $100 and to go faster, and he just blew the horn more. Oh, <laughs> he didn't go. So, <laughs> so I got there, and the plane's taxiing out on the tarmac. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I run, and I, I got the clothes on my back, and I wave to the pilot, nice-looking fellow, and he waves back. <laughs> Then I see Mari's face in the cockpit. Yeah. And then I see the the nose wheel go down, and he stops, and he laughs, and he lets the, the um, stairwell out for me. Yep. And then he pulls it back and takes off again a little bit like a hitchhiker going to stop, not going to pick you up. Mm-hmm. So he had some fun. So finally he put it out, and I go on with that load of clothes, and the whole 180 passengers are clapping for me when I get on. That's so funny. So I go down, and I sit down, and my daughter's sitting in the middle, and she saved me a seat about halfway down on the airplane and I sit there and uh, we take off and the wheels come up I guess she's about nine years old and then they're going up about 5,000 feet it went and she said what was that daddy I said he just turned his autopilot on hmm. oh so a fellow leaned over I done looked at him he had nice clear blue eyes he just looked too sharp I said he's TEA or FBI CIA or something really that big fellow sitting there he looked like Rex Tillerson where did so, you guys take off from again San Pedro Sula, Honduras. San Pedro Sula, okay. It's over on the Caribbean side. Okay. Death capital of the world for some years. The what? The death capital. The murder, death, ca- murder, murder capital? Murder, murder capital of the world for a good number of years, late, just some years back. But at that time, it was laid back and wonderful, but a nice halfway stop coming up. So when I said that, he leaned over and said, you fly these things? I said, I got a few hours, mister. My name Barry Seal. How you doing? And so then he got to talking to me, and we talked to airplanes and so forth. He said, I just got out of prison this morning in Honduras. I got caught down here. I didn't believe him one bit. <laughs> and he said that he had been a Transworld Airline uh, captain, and that he was, I don't believe he told me he was ex-CIA. But Commercial? Yeah, he was flew 747s. I believe he was the youngest 747 pilot that the TWA ever had. And he took a load of explosives down to the, Cuban Contras and got caught with a DC-6 loaded with 10 tons of explosives and he lost his job with a TWA. Wow. So then he's working doing whatever he can like this freelance and he got in trouble. Mm-hmm. So I didn't believe him a bit but we chatted about airplanes all the way on to New Orleans. He straight up just told you this on the airplane. That I just got out of prison this morning. You know. Flying like, explosives to 
Well, to the no, contrast, that, that was before. I believe he got, he, had, he got caught with a hundred kilos in a little piper. Okay, down there, and he served a year. Okay, I didn't believe it a bit. I thought he was just trying to pull me out. So when we landed in New Orleans, I shook hands with him, a nice fellow, and got out there, and here's twenty or thirty people, women and children, hanging on him, crying, begging, hugging his neck, and I thought that guy's telling the truth. <laughs> Ain't no way he could stage that. Wow. So uh, I went over to him and had Mari to write our name and address and the phone number on it. And I said, Barry, I might have some work for you if you're interested. Come out and see me in Santa Barbara. All right, I'll do it. So a week or two later, he comes out and I had a. Didn't learn his lesson, huh? Well, he was ready <laughs> to make some money. Oh, yeah. So I said, I can, I can, I'm hauling cocaine out of Columbia. And would you be interested? Said, oh, yeah. Well, let's, let's see what you can do with flying. I didn't know. What kind of pilot? People, all kind of pilots. See, people get the license, still can't fly. I don't right. know. <laughs> so I had a... What was your biggest concern with him when uh, he came out to meet you in Santa Barbara and you were talking to, and you were, you were talking about hiring him? What What were you worried? Were you worried about anything like, like obviously his flying skills or like were you, did you have any sort of suspicion that he could have been CIA or undercover or anything? Or Not after that. Not after not, seeing not his after families and family. I found out he was already in prison and all that sort of right. stuff. Just, okay. They don't do that. To, okay. uh, just, I was comfortable with him. Okay. I really liked Barry. He was mm-hmm. my friend. We, you, he seated off with some people. All right, we were just like. Uh, you guys got along great. We got along good. Really, I liked him. And uh, so I had a 690 Aero Turbojet Aero Commander. That thing was nearly new. What's it called again? Uh, uh, Aero Commander, a six six ninety. That's uh, six six ninety six ninety B B Aero uh, Commander. Yeah, and it was it had it had little jet engines that turned propellers. That thing was fast. It'd go to three hundred something miles an hour, and it'd go right on up there, right with the jets for a while. Anyhow, he got in that thing, and I said, "Show me what you got." And he said, "Show sure enough." I said, "Yeah." And it went, but a little while, I said, "You don't have to show me no more." He was like Bob Hoover. He just did the, I mean, he was aerobatic, like the Blue really? Angels. Oh, yeah. I fly all right. Mm-hmm. But that guy was like the Blue Angels. I mean, it was just like, <laughs> like a God. And then he cut the engine, and he just let it fly sideways to sideways till it comes, hits the ground. The only person I've ever seen that is in this air show with Bob Hoover, the world champion. So he was that good. He was good. He had a 1,000 parachute jumps. And in that movie they made about America made about him, it was so wrong. He was such a gentleman. They had him coming out of whorehouses and women hanging all over him. And yeah. That was just, I never heard him say damn. He didn't really? smoke. He didn't drink. He didn't do drugs. He was a businessman. He was yeah. a pilot and yeah. a gentleman. So after you were so impressed with his acrobatics and his flying skills, then what'd you do? I said, uh, Barry, I got a pl- this plane needs tanking. You know somebody? He said, yep. Needs what? Some- need tanking. I need, it won't go the range. Oh. And these tanks in it. So he said, yeah, I got a mechanic in uh, Mena, Arkansas that keeps his mouth shut. And so I gave him $10,000, and he flew away in my new airplane. <laughs> a few days later, he called and said, come to my house. I went to his house, and it was all tanked up. Wow. And that's when I told him, you know, I've been stopping at, uh, I'll hire you to fly, mm-hmm. and I'll give you $2,000 a kilo. I was getting five. And so he was happy with it. And I said, but now we don't need this plane tanked. Well, first off, we did a few loads, and he would fly down and meet me in Belize at a ranch I had near Orange Walk, and we would change the load over. But then it got dangerous. I figured, you know, we got $15, 20000000 million worth of cocaine changing planes here, and I would go into Jamaica 
uh, because I didn't mind flying out of flying that southern end, but I was scared to cross the U.S. border. Mm. I'm not scared, but I'd rather not. Saying, "All right, done." <clears throat> so, uh, but then I told him, "You, we can refuel in in the military base in Nicaragua." Well, he just couldn't believe it. <laughs> so that that's the only time I really ever impressed him. I said, yeah, you can come out of Bolivia, out of Columbia, anywhere. Mm-hmm. And they had that military base, no words, just come right in. They'll fuel you up, give you a steak and eggs, and polish your airplane, you'll be on your way. Really? Yeah. So Barry flew, and I mean he would fly, but he wouldn't fly another until I paid him. It was, so he did 500 kilos at the load, and so it was a million dollars he made. And uh, A so, million dollars for one flight. Right. And uh, he hired this guy, Emil Camp. I had to give the $20,000 for him to go down, get Emil out of the Honduranian jail. And Emil wasn't much of a pilot. Oh, no. he could fly, but he wasn't. he just get him around. Right. So uh, the two of them flew together. They were great big fellas. I said, goodness gracious. Two of y'all, you can put 400 kilos in there where y'all sit. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, he wouldn't fly without it. So uh, you might like this little story. He, uh, he would moan and groan until I paid him. Well, I didn't get paid until they got paid, and so I had a pipeline coming. And uh, sometimes they'd owe me six or seven million dollars. It'd take three or four weeks to for them to get money, and then I'd get get what they did. So I was paying him before I got paid. So I was like a loss. I'm I'm back. Uh, right, I'm you're really, front. You're fronting that money. Exactly. Front, yeah. So uh, he wanted. Uh, so you I, were you were paying Barry. Uh huh. How much would you pay him on one trip? Uh, $2,000 a kilo. I paid a million dollars a trip. So you'd give Barry a million dollars cash? Uh-huh. Yes. He would fly where? He would fly We'd, we'd he'd fly out of um, where he wanted to, up in Arkansas or Louisiana, and he would come over to a little radio station. But, like, where would he go? Where would he fly, like, to... He'd fly to Columbia? Yeah. But, okay. he, but we didn't know where we were going a lot of the times. Oh. We would uh, we would come over El Banco. It's at the forks of the Magdalena River there in... Uh, behind Barranquilla, mm-hmm. and there's a radio station. I believe it's still 7.20 a.m. on your dial. Uh-huh. And we come at 10,000 feet in a circle, and pretty soon there'd be a plane. You'd see it. It might be already there. It'd be like usually a Cessna 180. Mm-hmm. And he'd be circling, and you'd get right behind him, and you'd wiggle your wings. And you might go 100, 200 miles, and you'd get land in the jungle. Oh, and, and they would tell you where to land. They wouldn't say a word. We didn't speak. We just followed that you other just followed airplane. the plane. Followed him where we go. And there was a signal they would do with the with the wings. Well, we just knew it was him. It just, yeah. Okay. And uh, so followed that plane. Did that sometimes. Sometimes we go to the same place, but if there was a new place, we'd follow that plane. Okay. That was pretty neat. And then uh, he come back, stop at uh, Nicaragua, refuel, and come all the way on. He go and he went to Mena. And this is uh, what. So so he had the million dollars in cash. Yeah, I'd give him a million dollars every and what, week. And what would he do with that million once he landed there? I don't know. So that was just his. That wasn't for his cost to buy the cocaine or anything. No, we just, I got paid $5,000 a kilo. So I got paid $2.5 million, and I gave him $1 million. Okay, but so wouldn't I, they have to give him the, all of the cash, though? No, they didn't give him anything. Okay, okay. He just give, he, all right, he would land in Mena, Arkansas. Okay. And then he would put it in three different cars. Okay. And, and, and every day, I, I had a fella buying me six cars a week, great big ones. So he was, okay, okay, I, I, that was where I was confused. I, he none just, of the transaction revenue is going through the pilot at all. The pilot no, is just the delivery just person. He's a truck driver. Okay, got it. So, but anyway, he would, I had, he had the drivers. I didn't even want to meet his drivers. That's how, I was afraid to meet people. 
Right. They get caught, they're going to tell on you, exactly. which you all did. So, exactly. Uh, I had somebody buying cars, and they buy these LTDs or the Ford, uh, Ford or Mercury Marquis, mm-hmm. and they had big trunks. We put air shocks on tires that wouldn't go flat, new hoses, boom, boom. And then I gave those to the Columbians, and they, they would be a trunk full of cocaine and duffel bags. They have rattlesnakes on it. Some of them have cow horns. That meant this one went to this one. That one went to that one. Oh, wow. So uh, I had to just point the cars out to my friend Lito and give him the key. Bam. And I never want to see that car again. I said, it's going to your safe house. I don't want it back. Right. It's $5,000 to you, buddy. And Oh, I said, well, you can take it to New York, Canada, where you want to. It's, it's as good as you can do. So they liked it after a while. Wow. So anyway, one time, Barry was belly aching a little bit about might be being slow on pace. So I was in the store, and I saw these Stay Free Mini Pads, a pretty package. Stay Free Mini Pads? Tampacks. Oh, <laughs> tampons. <laughs> tampons, yeah. Australia tampons. And uh, so I, I got a million dollars and put it in a box, and I put those tampons on top of it, Stay Free, and wrapped <laughs> that thing up and put a bow on it. <laughs> That's great. Barry loved it. He made a place on his mantelpiece for those for the stay freeze. That's amazing. Yeah. That is absolutely amazing. So how long did your and Barry's relationship last? About two years. Two a years. Year and a half, two years. Uh-huh. And what when did it go south? What happened when it went south? Well, I got arrested in August 1982. Okay. So that's, that was the end of it. And then he was still. And then he went straight out full on working. And he bought the planes. From me, he, he gave Mari the money for all of them and what was owed and all that. He, oh, he took wow. care of it 100%, but he cut me out of the deal. He ought to give me a little percentage after that, but he didn't. Right. So you, how did you get end up getting arrested? Oh, I just flew down the load. I had $15 million in a, in a jet, and I chartered it out of San Antonio, and I flew down to... Uh, what kind of a jet? Just like a I don't private remember. jet? Falcon, okay. I believe it was. Okay. And I and uh, there was two pilots, and I was laying on top of the money, and I took it to the bank and put it in the bank. And, and the pilot said they wanted to stay for the weekend. Oh, man, it's holiday, da-da-da-da. I said, all right, I'll catch a jet back to Miami. Okay. Which, and so when I landed in Miami, I was arrested. And they charged me with all kind of stuff, but it was marijuana, all, all marijuana stuff. All marijuana. They didn't get yeah. you any cocaine charges. Nothing. They didn't know anything about it. So I did two years, uh, and I got out. And by that time, I found Barry was... Uh, had been working with him, and he'd been working with Oliver North, and he'd been paying off. How did you find out he, he'd been informant and working with these guys? I had heard it already, okay. so I was scared of him. So When you were in prison? So, but I will just tell you now, Barry had it paid off. He's, whenever I, I wanted to land in Louisiana, I had a sheriff there, sheriff there in a place that could for $10,000. Or I landed on Interstate 10. They was building. It was beautiful. I followed that thing all the way across Texas, landing on it, as they was building Interstate 10. The wow. best runway you could ever find. Wow. <laughs> With a truck there and turn the light on. That's it. Mile long, 10 mile long runway. Jeez. And we'd go out there the next morning and rub the black marks off where I'd landed. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So, so so after you got out, did you try to get reach back out to him or you, you no, were done with him? You didn't even try? You no, wanted to no, it wasn't, it wasn't that. I, I, I couldn't think that Barry, I didn't know what the deal was. So I was uh, watching, I was having breakfast. And uh, there was Ronald Reagan's blue eyes right there on television. Mm-hmm. He said, we have absolute proof that the communist Sandinista government is in the cocaine running business. And there was that old fat lady, the C-126 
on the runway in Nicaragua with Barry Dean, and I thought, oh, shit. The lady you sold the plane to? No, that was the one that Barry owned. Oh. Uh, he, he bought that after me, but okay. he, I knew what he was doing, and I knew that they was into it. So, uh, but Barry, I'm going to back up. Now, he wouldn't land anywhere else. He says, I got paid off to the governor. I got paid off just as high as you can get, it's, but it's going to cost you $50,000 every time my wheels touch the ground in Mena, Arkansas. So every time he landed, I had to pay $50,000. Wait, wait, wait. What? What? Yeah. Well, what part of the story is this? You're backing up now. You're backing up, but this is before you got to No, I'm talking about, you talking about Barry wanting to land at Mena, Arkansas instead of Louisiana. He, when, when I started flying with him, he said, I will not land anywhere else except Mena. I got it paid off. I cannot be arrested. I cannot get caught in Mena, Arkansas. Okay, so he claimed he had some sort of a deal in Mena, Arkansas, where he he could not get, he wouldn't get caught. He was protected. Exactly. So later on, we know that it was a CIA, and they were shipping guns back down with him. But he also said he was having dinner with the governor. So, so he, Mr. Clinton was uh, <laughs> not so, far away. He was a strong man of the governor in his, his home in Mena. And the the movie that Tom Cruise made, yeah, was written and played out as Mena, the name of the movie. And the Democratic Party got so hard behind them until they couldn't come out with a movie until after the election with Hillary Clinton because it shed bad light. Wow. And so the director quit. And that movie was changed all around and changed into America Made in a very poor movie. Right. But so they were hitting too close to home. So what did Barry, did? what kind of details did he tell you about about Mina, Arkansas, and his sort he of just like, says, his like cloak of invisibility. He, he just had. said, "Listen, it's going to cost you fifty thousand dollars every time my planes hit touch her down. I cannot get caught. Listen, plain out, I cannot get caught in Mina, Arkansas. It's hundred percent protected immunity." He said, "From the highest to the right on out." And then time or two, he said, "I'm having dinner with the governor tonight." Now I don't know where he was or not, but. Uh, that was what he, he mentioned was, to you casually. I'm having I'm, I'm having, having dinner, dinner with, the, with the governor. Wow. So, and then later on, we know that the CIA was putting some small arms on his planes mm-hmm. to take back to the Contra so they could load it up with cocaine. Can you imagine what they thought they was going to do with a Piper full of AK-47s in a war? That was just a front. What do you mean it was a front? The CIA, some outlaw CIA agents are saying, okay, we're going to supply the war. Uh, Congress won't supply the arms that we need to fight the uh, the communists in uh, Nicaragua. So we're going to have Barry, and uh, he's going to take these guns down for us mm-hmm. in his Piper. Right. <laughs> it's like a BB gun. It wasn't enough guns to really make a difference on anything for anything. Nothing, absolutely. But we're going to bring tons of cocaine back to pay for them. Oh, my gosh. So what, uh, I mean, I'm not super familiar with the story, but what were they doing? So if, if Barry was bringing back tons of cocaine to Arkansas, yeah, who was buying it? They were spreading it all over. They were putting it into that crack cocaine business, I suppose. Mm. So anyway, they, the, they, they had to hammer down. Yeah. <laughs> now... So you're you're saying that actual like politicians and stuff and, and and CIA officials were purchasing this cocaine and and spreading it out and selling it to people? They were having it. They were buying it in in Colombia, right. shipping it up by Barry, right. and of course they were distributing it. Oh, well, they had their people distributing it. 
That I mean that's what the whole story is about. It's, it's, right. There's no secret. That this right. is what I'm telling you. It's just real. Wow. And you and <clears throat> you kept in touch with Barry. So after you got out of prison, you kept in. T- did you keep in touch with Barry at all? No, I didn't keep in touch with him. Mari did somewhat. Mari, because Mari sold planes to him after you. Well, got... he just came and bought her the money for the planes and says, okay. "Mari, this is this is straight." So, I didn't I didn't think too much about it anymore. I was all right. So when I got out of prison, I now just a short while, and some days when I saw Ronald Reagan's blue eyes on the television saying that the communist Sandinista government was in the cocaine business, and my guts turned to ice water. I said, "Oh, Barry has done it." So then it was later on that afternoon, I got a call from him. He said, I'm coming out tonight, Roger. I'll meet you at this little uh, French restaurant in town. I didn't know it was there. So I'll be there at 9 o'clock. Where was this? In for Santa Barbara. Okay. So uh, I came in the door at, seven, at 9 o'clock, and he was leaning at the back of the thing, and he had gained weight, and he was leaning back. And I walked up to him. I said, are you wired, Barry? And he said, no, I'm not. I said, well, I'm not going to say anything. Just tell me. So he just started talking, and I looked around, and I says, uh, DE agents? And he said, every one of them. <laughs> There's about 20 people in the room, blue jeans, ladies with leather skirts and all on. And so the room was full of DEA agents, and I'm, I'm on this hot seat. So I, he started telling me, and he just said, Roger, they, they wrapped me up, and they uh, left me holding the bag. I couldn't do anything but testify. I couldn't do three life sentences. And he put his hands up over his eyes, and the tears ran down between his cheek, between his fingers. He said, I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. He said, so I've gone oh, to Congress. Shit. He said, I went to see Edwin Meese. that was attorney general at the time. I flew my jet up there, and I knocked on the door and told him that they were bringing ten, tons of cocaine out of Columbia. And he wouldn't believe me. He kicked me out. And the next day I went back, and I said, I can prove to you they're doing it so get the guy jake jacobson he put him with him he was a dea agent mm-hmm. and uh we went down and did one and a half tons and i bellied a plane in at nicaragua took a thousand pictures and i testified before congress and i've told them all your part but you're under my umbrella as long as you testify with me exactly what i say and we use my lawyer you can have your passport, have your money, and live anywhere in the world you want to. I said, Barry, they're going to kill you, friend. Oh, no. Ochoa brothers, this and another. He's in Spain, another one dead, and this and that and another. And uh, so I, uh, so the, the DEA agent came over, and he sat down, and we had Chevis Regal and Ice, and we had a nice time. I liked him. He's, a, I think, a crop duster from Alabama. We'd have been on the same team. I'd have been all right. I really did like the man. Yeah. And he just said, listen. You can you can come to Miami tomorrow in chains, or you can come first class with Mari. It doesn't matter to me, oh but you're going to testify before a federal grand jury. And if you do, you can keep your money, your passport. You can live anywhere in the world you want to live. But if you don't, the only place you're going to ever see your family again is in a federal prison visiting room. And he said, and you've got to have your pilot from Santa Barbara. you got to give him up. Barry knew that I was flying at another airline going same as him did more than he did mm-hmm. but he didn't know who Columbians told him I didn't ever tell him right right they trying to give a little competition I think so I just my guts turned to ice water and I went to see my friend my friend Jerry I'll say his name and me had been him been friend 50 years there wasn't no way I could tell on him just couldn't do it I mean I was just sick 
So I went and told him, I said, Jerry, I don't know what they're going to do, but they can cut my tongue out. I won't tell on you. <laughs> it's not going to do it. So I thought, well, I better go down to Miami and see what I can do. So I went into a fancy lawyer's office, and he was on the treadmill, and he got off, and I talked a little bit, and he said, well, being a snitch is like being pregnant. You either are or you're not. It's <laughs> <laughs> an interesting said, way to put it. <laughs> no, no, no. It ain't that, man. I've got to say something. I'm in a mess. I got. He said, well, if you say something, you've got to tell them everything. Mm-hmm. You leave anything out there, use everything you did, you're going to get several life sentences. Now, whoa, whoa, whoa. I went to see another lawyer, and he was just kinder, but he said the same thing. You, you fool with them, you've got to tell them everything. You leave anything if out. you work with them, you got to go you the whole go way. All the it's way, all you got to tell them it's all or nothing. So I couldn't do it, not even on my life. So I went to La Festival restaurant that night. It was on my birthday, January the 26th, 1985. And uh, Barry knew that was, I liked that restaurant, a lovely restaurant, no name on the door. In and, Miami? Yeah, in Carl Gables. So I went in there, and, and uh, him and his wife came in. Debbie, she was looking real pretty, and Barry was. And we had dessert together, and I just told him, Barry, I just, just can't do it. I said, they're going to kill you, friend. He said, oh, no, da, 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 da. I hugged his neck. Who, who, who were you telling him was going to kill him? Well, the Columbians going to kill Columbian. him. Certainly, going, certainly they're going to kill him. Of course they're going to kill him. He, if he testifies against all you're of them. just going to die, man. You ain't got no choice. Right. And you can go now, but you... These guys are ruthless. It doesn't matter almost, where you are, they'll find you, right? It's almost anybody you tell like that. Most of these people <clears> kill you. Mm-hmm. And you're, you're destroying their lives and their families and children and all that sort of stuff. And you did it, and you did it with your eyes wide open, and... You made a deal, you just you just can't tell. So most people don't live by that honor, and so a lot of them get killed. Mm-hmm. And uh, so anyhow, I, I hugged his neck. I may have kissed him. And anyhow, I, Mari and I and the children fled to Brazil. And The next day or what? Oh, yeah, right away. I think we went back to the house and got some things, and we were gone. And uh, so we're living in Brazil, and um, I got word I was up in somewhere in Brazil, and I was calling the Colombian. Uh, they owed me a bunch of money. They owed me three and a half million dollars. So I was trying to collect some of that, and as long as Barry was alive and this thing was going, they was going to pay me. But when Barry died, oh, I have good news, good news. They killed Barry Seal last night, or yesterday sometime. And I cried, and I told Mari, and my daughter cried. So anyway, How long after this, how long after you moved to Colombia did they tell you this? Six months. Six I, months after you moved to Brazil. I'm sorry, after you moved to Brazil. I think that... It was January of 26th of 1985 that I was with Barry. Yes. At and the then, restaurant. And, yeah, and then I think he was killed July of 86, just thereabout. About six months later, he was killed. Wow. So now they have no case against me. See, he was the only thing they had against me. And uh, <clears throat> on the first load that I flew. So how, so what is the, how did he die? Do you know exactly how he died? I mean, I know there's the story. Uh, I mean, what, yeah, what, what, what is like the official story of how he died? Well, of course, he was assassinated by a guy. Um, yeah, there's still three of them still alive and doing life in Louisiana prison. Uh, the guys R- like R- Ronaldo was a trigger man. I know him quite well. I'll tell you a little story about Ronaldo. On the first load I did for somebody, I don't know where it was. Uh, I think it was this guy, Jaime. This guy's just is a hit man, an ugly fella. Anyhow, I landed at a banana plantation there somewhere in 
in jungle. And uh, my uh, had a turbo prop, and it was a small wheels, a large wheel well. And he put 300 kilos of cocaine in there. And this guy got in with me with a Mac 10 shot uh, pistol, and he used to make sure I go to Louisiana. I could have went to Argentina. He wouldn't know which way it was. <laughs> so anyway, uh, we took off, and the wheels, uh, it was muddy. And the wheel wheels filled up with mud, and the, wheel, and, the, and the gear wouldn't come up. So here I am doing 200 miles an hour instead of 300. I'm not going to get home 2,500 miles. I'm just not going to make it. So in uh, Belize, where I used to land and refuel the old uh, prop planes with marijuana, a really nice fellow, Mr. Carter there, for $10,000, I could stop and refuel. So I told this fellow, we got to stop. No, 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 Louisiana. And he put the gun right to my head, the Mac-10. I said, well, shoot me, fool. You're going to die too, you know. So I wasn't worried about him shooting <laughs> So we landed this cattle farm in uh, Belize, and uh, oh, he was a uh, terrible beside himself. He didn't even know where he was. But uh, anyway, the, Mr. Carter sent a boy out to wash the plane, clean the wheel wheels out. We went in and had chicken and potato stew, and he was all happy with it. And we flew on. We flew on up to Louisiana. Wow! And that's when he met Barry. So he's the guy that actually shot and killed <clears throat> Barry. Okay. So his name was Rinaldo. Wow. Now, what isn't what's the story with with how Bush was involved with Barry? I don't know anything about that. Barry has two pictures of George and uh, uh, Jeb Bush walking away from his plane in Opelika Airport, where they just bought two kilos of cocaine. That's all what he said. That's what Barry said. And they got a package. And wow. he, he snapped their picture as they going away from the plane. So I don't know, and I think that's been on the internet some too. Is it possible that the, um, I mean, isn't it true that the American government or the CIA or the D, whoever it was, the DEA, made it extremely easy for the Colombians to kill him and to find him? To bury? Yeah. I don't, I, no, I don't think so. I think that no. they, uh, yeah, well, I tell you, I don't know who did it, but. Uh, do, they, do, you, do you think that they wanted him dead? Do you think the U.S. government wanted him dead, the DEA? And, not particularly. I no? think that okay. I think that the police in Louisiana wanted him dead, the DEA in that area, right where they've been chasing him. He just said, you, you guys ain't got sense enough to catch me, mm-hmm. or I'm not doing anything today. Don't be burning that government gas up. You know, he just bait him a little bit yeah, so yeah they wanted to go and take his picture and make sure he was dead mm. but i don't think that he did anything to make people really hate him that bad mm. but anyway he was flaunting it in front of them right and uh and the judge is the one now who who influenced the judge the judge killed him because he has already testified against all these columbians and the judge gives him six months uh in a halfway house Every night at 6 o'clock, oh. he's got to come in. So the judge set him up. So that's his death sentence. That death sentence, 100%. And they told, he's attached to that fucking halfway house, and they're definitely going to find him there. He's got to go every night at 6 o'clock. And the DEA stood up in court and said, Your Honor, this is a death sentence. They will kill him. He said he should have thought of that before he did this. Wow. And he said, Well, he's going to have bodyguards. No, a guy in prison can't have bodyguards. He can't have arms. He can't have nothing. He's got to drive right up into that halfway at house every night at six o'clock and they was waiting on him just riddled him you can see the pictures on the internet he just they said he put his hands over his ears and shot him like 50 times in that uh, in the car when he came up oh my god it was sad it how really, did you feel where were you what were you doing do you remember what, what the moment when they came to tell you uh, oh we got uh, great I, news Barry i called Seal. mario in columbia 
And that's when he told me, oh, great news, great news. They killed Barry Seal, you know. Well, I cried. I went yeah. to Omari and Miriam. They cried. Mm-hmm. He was our friend. Right. Even though he had he testified, he put me in his, he did the best he could. They, the CIA had left him holding the bag. 100% they set him up. And whenever all that Oliver North stuff come about, arms for cocaine and an Iran-Contra deal, mm-hmm. they just they just split. Everything was in his name. Everything, he, he was the one. What's he going to do? Right. His own people. See, he was a CIA man. Did you know that? Barry was with the CIA. Prior to all this. Pri- prior right. to the airlines. Right. And he had over 1,000 parachute jumps, and he was George Bush's real good friend, the old, the old man. He was his protege. And when he died, George Bush's personal phone number was in his wallet. And the lawyer called, and he said, Hey, Barry, how you doing, old buddy? And he said, They just killed Barry last night in a click. And he hung right up. And right up, yeah. Jesus Christ, man. <laughs> wow. What a fucking story. I'm glad to be out. I thought one time I'd never get out of prison. So you're in, when you got the phone call about Barry, where were you in Brazil? Yeah, I was in Brazil. And what what was your next move after all this? What were you thinking? Where 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 were you in your life at this point? What what did you want to do next? Like what did you have any sort of plans from you guys wanted to just like to stay in Brazil and just lay low there for the rest of your life? Or? Well, me and Murray had different plans. Okay. <laughs> I kind of like Brazil. I not like it, but it was opportunity for me to go into into the uh, interior and grow soybeans. I'm a farmer. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I mean, the land was $6 an acre and it was just like easy to clean. All you got, you don't know, no fertilizer, nothing, just plant the seeds. And right. Grow it. Need combines. So I took Mari out to see her 30,000, let's see, 30,000 hectares, 75,000 acres. And she just cried and said, Roger, if I die in this godforsaken country, please don't leave my bones here. So I just felt sorry if I didn't matter to me where I had a lot of money and just go where I wanted to. So, and we was, were, all, was all your money in cash or did you keep it in bank accounts or what? what had you, you obviously had, you had tens of millions of dollars, right? Yes. But, uh, I, 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 I invested it with crooks. With crooks. <laughs> Everybody just about to crook if you give them your money. Yeah. That's, that's, that's. It just don't come back. <laughs> that's, I that's, don't know what That's happened. the way it works no matter what business it's, you're exactly, in. Exactly. Just you let somebody else hold your money and it's gone. Yeah. So I, I invested with a lot of people in huge real estate deals. Mm-hmm. And uh one thing I did buy, I bought the uh, world's most expensive coin. It called a Brasher de Bloom. Really? Yeah, I paid three hundred fifty thousand dollars for it. And I'm already needs some money, so she sold it for seven fifty, and the guy turned around the next day and sold it for a million four, and it's oh. worth ten million dollars now. What? It was made a coin. A coin. Bra- how, how do you say it? Brasher de Bloom. Brasher de Bloom. I'd love to get a picture of this on the screen. That would be a de Bloom is um, the pieces of eight. You've heard of those? Oh yeah. Well, that's a, an eighth of a de Bloom. Is this it right here? <laughs> oh yeah, that's it right there. There you go. There's five of them. I had the, the unique one. There they are. I don't know that that's it. That No, that don't look like it. No, I haven't seen it. It's got a wheelbarrow on one side. and Look up Brasher de Bloom. Yep, that's what he typed in. Okay, well, that's what it would be then. So that thing is worth over $10 million now. And today, yes. And you paid 300000 for it. 350000 to be exact. And, it, and uh, a little story to go with that. They... Uh, 
it was in, I can't pronounce it, but the, the Nikoin newspaper, Ninumistic, uh-huh. <laughs> a, a paper. And uh, the Bank of Miami read about it. So they went to Sam, the corn dealer, and says, and it says, mystery buyers buys most expensive corn on earth, you know. Really? So, so that was just one thing that brought a little light to me. So I, uh, they said, we will give you a, a million dollar insurance policy against it if you will loan it for us to put in our bank. So they built a pedestal in the Bank of Miami, all marble down there, and they put that coin in it with lights on it. And they give me the the uh, insurance policy, Sam did. So if anything happened to it. You get a million bucks. I mean, well, I had that in a lockbox in Grand Cayman Island, and guess what? It was on the judge's desk. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> Oh, they don't. They, they was unmerciful. Did you have bank accounts set up in Cayman Islands? Oh yeah, really? Yeah, and it got that money got stolen too. The guys out in Bakersfield living large. Who? The banker. He took the money out of the bank and just closed the bank down. And now he lives. When I got arrested, now he's out in Bakersfield. And if I even say boo to him, I'll go to prison for extortion or something wow so after he finds out you're in a prison he just says fuck it i'm taking his money he just shut the bank down and took my money oh my god <laughs> that is wild that is just that is just wild his name is steven what's his name mighty mctaggart you guys remember his name <laughs> I, I, I called him <laughs> how much money did he steal from you oh i'm not saying it. <laughs> you don't want to say oh uh <coughs> three and a half million dollars at that time okay yeah good lord good lord so mari doesn't want to be in brazil anymore but you guys are still in brazil you guys you, so we went out and we went all the way to the tip of argentina right down to the the right to the bottom of it <clears throat> almost to the straits and uh Ushuaia. and then we we visited argentina and looked at all the glaciers and the ranches and things, and we just couldn't find it. So we mm -hmm. got first-class tickets to Amsterdam, Mari, where she's from. And her eyes was just sparkling. She got on that plane with the Dutch people and speaking her <coughs> language, and we went to Holland. And then we lived in France for a year, and then we went down to Mallorca, Spain. Ooh, Mallorca. That's so, a hot spot. Where I met Mr. Howard Marks. The uh, author of... Mallorca's the big island, right? Yes, it's not very big, but it's an island. It's, it's like famous. you take a ferry there. Yeah, right. Yeah. Uh, and so I met Howard Marks, the infamous Howard Marks. Who is Howard Marks? He wrote Mr. Nice, a famous book, one of the first ones about marijuana smuggling ever come out. Oh, really? Yeah. He was, uh, he was sleazy. <laughs> what do you mean by the sleazy? Oh, we did some deals, and, and whenever he knew he was his time was up, he uh, hired me to haul a load out of Morocco for $2 million, and he turned me in instead of paying me. Wow. Bastard. <laughs> That's a nice word for him. And I, was, and I escaped from police three times, and I still couldn't believe he did it to me. I couldn't believe it. So you were in Spain. You're still doing deals. Yeah, you're still running I was, shit. And I, was, I bought a ship. I was hauling hashish. And on a ship now. You're, yeah. you're giving up the planes and you're, oh, you're, you're taking ships. Taking ships, yeah. <clears throat> All the 20-ton loads out of Pakistan and 20-ton loads out of Thailand. How, uh, how did you get, where did Pakistan come into the picture here? We just buy hashish there. You go over there in the camels and ride the camels around with the fellas up towards Afghanistan. So this guy, this guy said, hey, we got hashish in Pakistan. Oh, we can do it. If you move it, we can do it. So we did. 
And he had all these connections. He had connections from okay. a friend, a real nice fellow. They all uh-huh. did now. But anyhow, I was a good fellow. We, so you we, bought a ship and you sailed to Pakistan. Uh-huh. What was that like? Nothing. Nothing. Just nothing. <laughs> you don't, do, was the, well, you don't, the experience wasn't anything? Not particularly. We was in Malta and uh, uh, taxi drivers, uh, the, they had some guys from North Africa that, that killed the taxi drivers and they gouged their eyes out and reached in there to get the little bullet out and, and throw them in behind the ship and they came up all around the, the taxi drivers did around the turn of the ship. That was the most exciting thing would have all those policemen all over me. <laughs> Jeez. 20 tons of hashish from Pakistan to where? To Canada. To Canada. Uh-huh. How long did that take? I don't remember. I really don't. More than a couple of days. Oh, six weeks, something like that, I reckon. Six weeks. I, I didn't do that part of the trip, but I met the trip with a float plane. And then I flew the... Mm, I, so you didn't stay on the ship the whole way? No, I, I took it over there. Okay. And then mm. I uh, uh, I bought a Cessna 206 on floats from Catch Ketchum and... Uh, on floats. Uh, I love the way you say it. <laughs> it's basically, it just means you could land it on, this, on the ocean, and, and right? The, yeah, on the water. And, it, and you could taxi we'll it land. to the side of the ship? No, we, they unloaded it and piled it up. And then I hauled it down across the San Juan Fuga Straits between Canada and the United States, and I landed on a lake in Washington State. And I hauled load after load in that snotty weather. You couldn't see nothing. Just pull the power and come in and land on the lake and hope you didn't hit nothing. Jeez. That's yeah. insane, man. That's just yeah. so bonk. Such a crazy story just like it's amazing that you're sitting here alive right now after all that you've been through like it's just like yeah i almost got killed on the first load of that uh oh i crossed the um it was a moonlight night full moon and i'd been to that lake lake oset i believe is how it's pronounced in washington washington state just (laughs) over on the in the olympic mountains just on the coast it's a pretty big lake got some islands in there it's got a radio station at the end of the lake and you can make your approach right over that radio station and land on the lake and uh so i'm coming and i think oh i'm a little early i must have a tailwind it's clear and i see the lake and i see a a white line white sand around it i didn't remember a beach on the lake but okay it must be nice so i pull the power to land and I get right down almost to land, and I see that it's not a lake. It's a burnt-over area where it's been clear-cut and been set on fire, and it's black like the lake. And I see stags sticking up 10, 15 feet high everywhere, and I'm down in them. And I just pull the power and just go out to the jaws of death just trying to pull that thing straight back out of there. What I didn't realize is that what I thought was a beach was a logging road going around this cut-over area. Oh, my gosh. So you can just sometimes, your mind can just fool you. Something terrible. How much are you making when you're starting to run this stuff from Pakistan up to... We didn't make much. I I don't remember how much we paid for it, but we should have made a lot. But it had too much yak fat in it, and it wouldn't stay lit. And I think we found too much what yak fat. Yak fat. They take the fat from the yak and take the marijuana, um, the glue of the, the... the juice from the marijuana, and uh, and and rub it with their hands like this till it gets hot, and they make hashish. And if they they put the yak fat in it to make it stick together, and okay. if you put too much on it, it won't stay lit on their cigarette. Oh, so it just brought the price way down. So it just wasn't that. It's what no no more cocaine deals once you went over to Europe. No, I stayed away from that. Okay, uh, 
So, yeah, I did. I did another. I did a load of cocaine to Australia, the biggest ever in the history of Australia. I got caught with $400 million worth down there. When was this? After you moved to Europe? Yeah. How did this, how did this deal come about, and who, who are you doing business with? Was it the same guy that you met in Mallorca? No, we done we done split now. He's done he done ripped me off real bad. Okay. I got to prison. I escaped from the. Uh, I, they arrested me in Spain. I, I, I escaped three times, and the third time they put me in jail there in Mallorca. And uh, oh, you were in jail in Mallorca. Wow. And so in prison in Mallorca. And so, uh, I was. They took me to court for extradition. I had double extradition. Germany's asking for my extradition for this hashish. I hired a guy to haul the load, and the United States is asking because I owe them 25 years special parole, and they're asking for that, and they say that they got me for moving several million dollars worth of gold coins that they said they could have, before money laundering, they said he moved these gold coins that the United States government would have seized had they known they belonged to Reeves. That was the indictment. Wow. Cared five years, and I got five years for it. But uh, Germany wanted me. Because so I, they just made up some bullshit. Oh, just it's anything to get you to extradite me. So now, because now Barry was gone, they had, really had nothing else on you. So they right. just made something up. So uh, I paid the, uh, the German captain of my ship four hundred thousand dollars to haul a load of hashish, and mm-hmm. he uh, bought he bought him a long cigar and a long BMW, and uh, the police <laughs> arrested him. They found the money, and they said, "If you'll tell us who it is, you'll be home by Christmas." Mm-hmm. But they didn't tell him which Christmas. He got seven years up in Germany. So now they've arrested me in Spain. After I got away from them so much, they handcuffed me this way, like over my hands this way, everywhere I go. And it's very painful if you left that way overnight. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I can imagine. You can't get out of them that way. So uh, <clears throat> let me see. So anyway, they take me to court. And uh, Mari's there and my son. And i there for the extradition hearing. And I have four guards guard me. All my paperwork says use maximum restraints. So Because you had already escaped. escaped. So, and they got my history from uh, Interpol. Mm-hmm. So uh, I'm sitting there and I talk to the lawyer. I says, I wonder, I'm above the palm trees. How high is this place? I'm on the third floor. Mm-hmm. And he said, you'll kill yourself. And I said, well, I'm dead anyway. I've got this thing, three and a half tons of hashish charge in Germany. And mm-hmm. uh 25 years parole in America plus the coins. Right. So I bound across it. When two of them leave to go smoke, I bound across the room and jumped up on the desk of the sonographer, which is nine months pregnant, and I kicked the window out of the courtroom. And I jump up on the ledge. I'm handcuffed. Like, look, not like this? No, I'm in front of me. Oh, now, you're in front of you. In okay. court. And uh, so I look down, and it's an awful, awful long way. I thought there might be some power lines or telephone wires I could grab on the way down and break it, but they wasn't. And there was a car parked a little bit up on it. It looked like it was a station wagon. And I'd worked on the Los Angeles Fire Department practice jumping in the net from four floors. So I'd bailed out and hit the top of that car. Wham. And uh, the roof what was went. The, what was your strategy when you were falling from I, the. I hit right on my heels and my butt right in. And, and the roof caved in and saved my life. And, but it went down. It destroyed that car. And the. And the uh, like in a sitting position you landed. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. But more on my feet. And then, okay, and, then, uh-huh. <clears throat> and uh, I still have a dead spot in my back from that jump. <laughs> it gets hot if I get upside of something. I have to get it off. Oof. So, uh, I uh, I mean, it was like Donald Duck. I jumped out of that car and ran. Anyhow, the next day the newspaper said, Spider-Man escapes. 
<laughs> but anyhow, they caught me, and I, they extradited me up to Germany. And Germany gave me eight years for using a German citizen in an international crime. They didn't have any hashish or nothing, but because I'd hired a German citizen, and he told, if he'd have kept his mouth shut, there'd been nothing. So wow. I got eight years up there. So you let, so you spent the next eight years of your life in Germany in prison? No, after one year, I escaped from Lubeck Maximum Security Prison. What? Yeah, I don't think anybody ever escaped. So I went out to the bars and got all cut up real bad and hurt and and lost my clothes and got my shoes and. So this out. wasn't this wasn't some sort of like tunneling escape, right? Oh no, I cut through the went through the bars. And went and went up, got on the roof and went above the guard towers. And then I jumped down on one guard tower by the sally port and bailed over the fence into a pile of dirt, a, a sand pile, and got away. And a woman was there. I watched her, and it was raining real hard, and I'd lost my clothes, most of them. And I had my blue jeans on. And I, I watched her and a little boy come, and she brought her husband to the door. And when she went back, I jumped on top of the the guard tower, which was one floor below me, and the guy went, hey, it was a tin roof. And they're trained to kill you. I mean, they got oh, the same yeah. moves out there. And then I went across, and I went straight towards her so she, so he couldn't shoot me. And, and then I went around behind the cars and was running downhill, I mean, striding. And here, I heard, bam, 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 she's up on the sidewalk knocking the parking meters over, trying to kill me. And I jumped behind some car, and she just, yeah, 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 at me. And the little boy standing in the seat, she, she tore the fender off of her car uh, on another car trying to get me. Really? So I jumped over a fence, and it cut my hands all up. They had glass on top of it, and I had shoes on with $200 that Mari had slipped me in the prison. And, and my shoes went down. I went almost half my knees in the mud and the blood and cut my chest all up. Oh, man. And I. Uh, so I took off running and lost my shoes and my $200. Now I'm barefooted and just have a pair of blue jeans, no top on. And I get away and get to Holland. Whew. And you got to Holland. You crossed the border. Just crossed the border. I had a heck of a time. At I what point her, did you meet up with Mari? I didn't. She was mad with me. Told me to go back. Ooh. <laughs> Ouch. Why was she mad? Because you escaped? You're destroying my life. What do you mean? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> the police going to be here any time. I can't get the papers out of the house. What right. do I do with them? Right. I bury them under a rock. I don't care. Go. So mm -hmm. I think she was about, she was tired of it at that time. How old were you at this point when you escaped that prison in Germany? Uh, it was 1990, so I was uh, 47 years old. 47 years old. Wow. And what did you do when you got to Holland? I, uh, I met up with uh, Mari's uh, cousin, and she had buried $100,000 for me on the, on the place there in case I did get out. And she told me, you go to the linden, to linden tree, you go to the haystack, and then you go to the linden tree, and you turn right, and you go 10 steps. But she didn't tell me there's 20 linden trees. <laughs> <laughs> so we, have, we had fun. So they were messing with you, huh? No, no. I mean, Mari just... She just remembered how she got to where she buried it. Mm -hmm. So I got an iron rod and just, I finally found it. Oh, okay. got some money and then I got me some clothes. I stayed there for a while and got a passport and I went back to South America. And then I went back to see the Colombians and the people that I knew and uh, stayed there for a while. And uh, then I got a job to take a boat uh, to Australia with a ton of cocaine on it. So I took a boat down there and I got caught. Took a boat from from Columbia. No, to I took. I bought the boat in Houma, Louisiana, and I took it to Australia from there. What kind of boat was it? 
It was a oil, oil supply vessel, one that goes out to the oil wells. Okay. And uh, when they get old, they can't get insurance on them, so they sold it scrap. But there's some, you could eat off the engine room floor. Oh, really? Like a museum piece. It was how long? How big was it? How long was it? Like a hundred footer. A hundred footer. Yeah. And how did you? Um, where did the cocaine come from? It came. They loaded me in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean, just above the equator. Oh, really? A, a, a tuna boat came out of an old wooden tuna boat and mm-hmm. came to me in rough weather and throwed it over. Just they threw it over. The, they threw, threw it, it over the over deck. It. They swarmed over and stole everything they could. They wanted my food, my extra fuel. It was, oh, really? Oh, it was. It was a bunch of savages. Jesus. And who? How many people? How many people are on your crew on that ship? Uh, three of us. Just three I, of you. Three, me by myself, really. I had my brother-in-law with me, and the Columbian that got on him, both of them, was seasick and couldn't stand up and didn't know how to do anything. I had to cook and wash the dishes. Oh, my gosh. And how long? So tell me, talk to me, tell me about this trip from from the Caribbean where they loaded up your ship to Australia. What right. was that like? <clears throat> well, that was, that was interesting. I... Uh, I left home in Louisiana. I never <clears throat> never run the ship before, and I mean it was a, a learning curve for me. And somebody left the uh, water on down in the, one of the bathrooms. We only had six hundred gallons of fresh water because we'd change it all to fuel. So we ran out of water before we got to Key West. So I had to go into Key West and get water. And then I took off and went across the uh, tongue of the ocean through the Bahamas, and I went to um, Senegal. What's the islands off of the of the Anyhow, some island 600 miles off of Senegal. And uh, I can't think of the name of them right now. But anyhow, I stayed there a week. The Colombians told me they'd load me there. Like so, uh, Barbados? No, no. This is... A, this is a, what? Canary? No, south of the Canary is about 1,000 miles. I can't think of it. I know it as good as my own name. I know the Praia is the name of the town. Hmm. <laughs> oh, it's anyhow, it's Senegal. Okay. And uh, so I stayed there, and then the Colombians said, no, come back towards Columbia a 1,000 miles. I what? Because I just got enough money, just fuel just barely to make it to Australia. So I have to go back a 1,000 miles, and then they're not there, and I have to go three or four days cruising around up and down below the radar Mm -hmm. or the satellites, and finally they show up and throw the stuff on. Mm -hmm. And uh, then I go down, and I go uh, follow the center of the Atlantic Ocean down, because the current goes counterclockwise in the southern oceans, clockwise in the northern oceans. Mm-hmm. And uh, I went far south of Cape Town and went down um, went down about 50 degrees in the great southern ocean near Antarctica. And I came with it. And uh, I woke up one morning and the waves was, I fished in Alaska, you remember? And yeah. These waves was just in, un, indescribably tall. It wasn't rough. But they were just mountains. Giant swells. Just swells, and they were sharp. I mean, almost straight up and down. And the boat would come, and it would just come up, and it would stop and go. And then the propellers would come out of the water, and there'd and be a curl on the top. surf down it? And then surf down it, and the nose would stick in the ground, in the water. Oh, it'd come back over. Well, I was real uncomfortable. I so bet. I was supposed to go under towards Melbourne, so I, I got out of it. And I turned north, north to get out of that sharp latitude. And I went and unloaded uh, I went unloaded up about the middle of the West Australian coast in a real desert area and was arrested there. But I uh, I have visions. 
and two weeks before I was arrested, I had a crystal clear vision of me being arrested and how it was and my feelings. I, uh, I was, they was on my back with hands and putting the handcuffs on me, and I was in the sand with the, down there, and I was crying, and I was just laying, poor, poor, poor Mari. I knew our life was over together. And it happened exactly like I saw it in that vision. So I turned my ship from and went 500 miles from where I was about to go. But the snitch was waiting on me, so I didn't have any choice. Who was the snitch? <clears throat> a guy named Eduardo, the, uh, the owner's brother, uh, friend, and he had been working with them from the day one. So they knew all we were coming from before we left. So your vision of this, all this happening and everything exactly. falling apart came, came to fruition. Yes. So what happened after they arrested you? Oh, they put us in a bulletproof van, one of those things like armored trucks, and took us to prison. Wow. And how many, and you ended up, obviously, so you didn't escape that prison, right? You stayed in Australia. No, I well. didn't. I uh, I could have one time, and Mari <laughs> wouldn't send the little money and needed to have some help. Mari was time. pissed at you. She ain't going to help me get out. Were you were you guys in communication at all? Did you guys communicate every, back and forth? Every day. Australia prisons are so much nicer than American prisons. Really? Yeah, oh, they give you a long time, and it's hard, but they treat you good. The food's good. The officers seem to go to school to have a little more intelligence than just the scumbags that they have. The here. officers are way different. In oh, here. yeah. And I feel like I've always I've always thought <clears throat> with all the people that I've talked to that have been in, in and out of prison, especially on this podcast, is that the, the people that end up in the United States that end up being prison guards yeah. are like the people who couldn't even make it as cops. They couldn't even make it as cops. Security guards. They are some right. of the lowest life scum on the face of the earth. And it seems like the, the people that are the security guards are prison guards in this country. They're, they're not people that are there because that's what they wanted to be. It's because they failed at something else and they just. They and, got a job and they got a badge and they got authority and they right. just strut. Right. Like you woke up, well, you get talked ugly too. They kill people in there. Mm-hmm. They hurt you. And the prison guards in Australia, uh, was it like they were they were paid better? They were educated more? They actually... They All were, of that. Was there like more of like a, a sense of like a mission to get something done there? Like we got to... Oh, it wasn't good, but it was just not... It wasn't such hatred as these fools here have for you. It just didn't really? have that ring for it. Hmm. Oh, you had some nasty ones once <clears> in a while. But right. They'd be like one out of 20 or 30 might be nasty. Mm. Okay. But here, you get every other one that's nasty. Right. Yeah, a good 50% of them. There's some nice ones here, too. But it's rare. So how many years did you stay in that prison in Australia? 18 years. 18 years. Mm-hmm. And it was the most maximum security prison that there is in that country, right? So the most, most secure prison in the Southern Hemisphere. The most secure prison in the Southern Hemisphere. What it's known as, yes. Wow. And what was your experience like there for 18 years? Uh, well, when I first went in, I'd, I'd been in a week or two, and when they got my paperwork that I escaped from five different prisons, <laughs> they came and arrested me right where I was having supper. And they took me to, to that prison. I was in the Hakia prison. They took me to uh, Casarina prison, and they put me in a shoe. Mm-hmm. And I was in there for over a year. And uh, and that's that, a, the shoe is basically just an isolated box just by yourself. Well, there was five of us in this one. Okay. And it was, uh, it had room for 12 prisoners in there. And they had, uh, it was like, kind of like the Silence of the Lambs. That was a big cage. Mm-hmm. And they had uh, six guards on the other side looking at you through a one-way mirror. 
And they come in the morning with all of them had uh, big clubs, and they opened the door. And they brought food in. We cooked it ourselves. And then they come in at 6 o'clock and locked our doors, and that was it. That's all we had in them. You had a little, you could talk to them through a, through a speaker, mm-hmm. and uh, that was all. It wasn't bad, but it was just like, how long am I going to be in here? And that's when I had the, uh, I wondered, okay, I've got 25 years in America, and I've escaped from the German prison. I've done this, got life here. I might never see my children or my grandchildren. They might ever know me. I believe I'll write about when I, my grandma bought me the little horse. And they had a computer room in there. And you, so you were, you were there for life. You, yeah, you thought life. you were there for life. I was hoping I'd get out. I certainly right. behaved myself. I had to go 18 years before I could ask for parole. Mm-hmm. So uh, uh, I'd write it down. Okay, I, when I got the Mexican Pinto, I'm going to write that story tomorrow. So they had the little computer room there, and uh, I didn't know how to turn the thing on. And it had a thing called uh, paintbrush. It didn't have a program on it. So I could type. So I could type one line. And then the next day I'd think about when my daddy was robbed in Chattanooga, and I'd write that little story. And then I got where I'd write two or three of them a day. And in the end of about three or four months, I had over a million words written in one line. Wow. So when I got out of the shoe, they gave it to me on, on disc, and I went and uh, I got out, and they, they let me buy a computer. They let me, let you buy a computer. Oh, really? Time. Yeah. It wasn't hooked up to anything, but you could do all the you could put a lot of programs on it, like encyclopedias and like a laptop or something. It or? A, it, no, it was a full-on computer. And where did you keep it? it? In your in your cell. You had really? A, had a cell with a door and a lock to it, and yeah. It oh was, wow, it was pretty nice. Ain't no lie about it. Now compared to America, it's quiet and no internet though. No, okay, nothing like that. <clears throat> but you had telephones and it wasn't expensive. I called Mari every day for twenty minutes. So anyway, I took that thing out and it took me. Two years to straighten out what all I had written and saw what it was all different colors where I'd misspelled and just right. I just put what my thoughts were. So you went through and edited it, and revised well, it. And I had to write it really because yeah. I was just writing my thoughts as fast as I could right. just, just put them. So that's how I did it. So I, <clears> I took it out and I, I got uh, uh, I, I, I took two thirds of it out. So there's only 520 pages. Mm-hmm. They'd have been 1500 pages if I'd put it all in there. Wow. And you have it published into a book now, which is called, what's it called? Smuggler. The Smuggler. No, just Smuggler. Just Smuggler. No, Smuggler the... Roger Reeves, a memoir. A memoir. Mm-hmm. And it's on the Amazon best-selling list, and uh, it's done good. I enjoyed it. It's a, it's a, it's a fascinating. And you have the audio going to be done soon? It's already done. I'm just waiting for Amazon for approval. to approval. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah. So what did you take away from... From all of this, from this crazy, amazing life that you've had, and after after all the time, well, well, actually, let's go back because you were you were in Australian prison for eighteen years, but once you got out of prison there, you went to another prison, right? Horrible. I was treated something terrible when I uh, there was three marshal three Australian marshals with me. I come back handcuffed because there's a warrant from the United States from parole mm-hmm. from 1977, <clears throat> 43 years ago for possession of marijuana. I got off the airplane laughing and chatting with the Australian guards. I was slammed upside the wall by border security. Eyes forward, eyes forward, kicking my legs apart, putting handcuffs on me so hard to cut the blood off, leg irons, eyes forward. 
and they walked me about 100 yards, turned me over to the marshals. The marshals took some of the leg irons and stuff off, chained me to the wall and left me there all day. Then they took me to the Metropolitan Detention Center. On Con Air? No, I was just they, in a van there was in oh. Los Angeles. They took me to Metropolitan Detention Center in Los Angeles and put me in isolation. I said, what in the world am I in isolation for? Done nothing. And I was there three or four days, and I talked to the lieutenant. When he came by in the morning, he said, I, nothing I can do for you, Reeves. So there's a guy came there, and he was in a suit, nice-looking fellow. He opened it up. He said, hello, Reeves. I just want to see what you look like. My name is uh, Associates Warden Short, and I saw your National Geographic documentary me, and it does me pleasure to keep you in isolation. And he shut the little Judas window, and that's the last I saw. I never could get out of there. So I stayed in nine months without a hearing, which the parole board has to give you one within three months. They never did give me one. I paid the lawyer $7,500. His name was uh, Cannon up in San Francisco. Uh, he never once made a phone call, never, and somebody got to him. What was his name, Marty? Christopher Cannon. Christopher Cannon. Christopher Cannon, the lawyer in San Francisco that the pro board said, don't touch it. And he stole my $7,500 and never made one phone call. That bastard. I mean, thoroughbred. Thoroughbred. Yeah. Wow. So I what was the documentary he was talking about? National Geographic come down to Australia, and they did one on me called Australia's Hardest Prison. Oh. And they did one. Uh, I got some some action in that one. Because I was looking for that online. I couldn't find it. I saw something on Na on a History Channel. They take it off after a while. I understand National Geographic does, and then they put it back on. It was real big at one time. Okay. Yeah, I, I, I remember searching for it, and I couldn't find it. I got a copy of it. Okay. I got several copies of it. I could send one if on it. So how long did you end up staying in Los Angeles Metropolitan? They sent me to, um, they sent me on uh, Con Air to uh, Oklahoma. And there I got put on the show floor, but I had to report to the officer every two hours or they was going to go back in the shoe. So yeah, I, was, I couldn't believe it. And uh, I just saw the corruption of the Con Air and whoever, whatever congressman or senator owns that. I met oh, yeah, explain that. That's I interesting. I met people from Wake Rose, Georgia, Albany, Georgia, Jacksonville, Florida, and uh, they got caught with two grams or something, three grams, five grams. They facing five years, and they mentally probably a little problems with mental. A lot of prisoners do. Mm -hmm. And uh, they were being sent to Los Angeles for psychiatric evaluation. And it takes about three months to go and a month or two to come back. And they stay in Oklahoma, and they go from one place to another on Con Air until they finally get to some doctor in Los Angeles that says that they have a problem or not. And then I met the ones from Los Angeles and San Francisco, and they were going to Atlanta, Georgia, to have psychiatric evaluation. So no matter where you got busted for these small-time drug offenses, they would find a psychic or a psychiatric uh, psychologist Psych on the opposite end of the country. So they could shuffle you back and forth so they had air. a reason to fly con air that's all right. around the country it's just blatant ripping off off the government that's just, that's as bad as i've ever who seen. owns con air is con i air, don't is think that you better not, ask <laughs> i is, might be back in prison that's interesting who can you find out maybe on google like who owns con, like con air you would think that would just be part of the bop right no uh, it's it's somebody owns it other bop wouldn't be doing that how many how many uh airplanes do they have does con is on does 
I saw three big jets. There's three jets. Must, and then they got a lot of, uh, that's all I know. But that that tower in, in uh, Oklahoma, which is center, has got 1,800 rooms. And those planes are landing and coming in there day and night. It's just like Grand Central Station of federal prisoners. Wow. Why are they moving them like that? I don't know. Somebody's making big, big money. Whoa. That is kind of wild. <laughs> I had no idea about that. Yeah. He's trying to inch it over. You just double click the top, yeah. It probably won't tell you the truth. F fleet size 59, parent company Conair Group Inc. Headquarters, Abbotsford, British Columbia, Canada. <laughs> they have 59 planes. Conair Group Inc. So it's a corporation. Yep. Whoa. They own some politicians, I guarantee you. That. Oh yeah. They're uh Wow man. Wow, that's fuck that's What a world we live in, Roger. What a world <laughs> we live in, I'm telling you. That is incredible. Incredibly corrupt. <laughs> yes. The whole system is. Yeah. Let me just tell you about the drug war. Today, I'm not talking about, but um, a, a policeman gets a job here or in any town. There's a, 10 or 15 of them going this year. And one of them, he's a go-getter. And he lets his hair grow, and he gets some tattoos and some dirty clothes, and he goes under the bridge, and he gets one of those poor mental, mentally ill people, bums, hobos, and they sell two or three or five grams to their neighbor over there, and he arrests both of them federally. Now he's got two, and next month he does it, and he's got two more. At the end of the year, he's got 15 or 20 major drug busts. Mm -hmm. And he does that for two or three years. And uh, the other fellow, he's, he's at a desk somewhere, and he, this guy makes captain. This guy's a captain, the guy at the desk? One, no, the one, that, the one that makes all these little tiny busts, uh -huh. all these insignificant nothing. He's just putting poor people in prison. Right. Now he's captain. Now he's lieutenant. Now he's captain. Now he's, he goes up the ladder, rocket. Uh -huh. Now the prosecutor, the one that can say, I got him, I got him. He has two grams of methamphetamine. Two grams, ladies and gentlemen of the jury. He has five, give him five years in prison. No matter about his poor wife and children crying. Give him, put him in prison. We need, we need fodder for, this, for these private prisons and for the federal system. Oh boy, we got him. And if I'm a prosecutor and I get enough convictions, I got a 98% conviction rate, I'm going to make judge. Mm. And I'll never lose my job at $500,000 a year. <laughs> it's all about climbing the ladder. It's climbing the ladder and making money. Wow. Yeah, yeah that's that exactly how it works. That judicial system is just so, so corrupt. Are you familiar with the story of um, uh, Ross Ulbricht? No. He's a, uh, he was a kid. He was in his early 30s when he got busted, and he got, like, two life sentences for... Uh, he started this website. It's like a... It was, it's called Silk Road. It was basically, like, this dark web um, place where people can go buy any kind of drugs they want. So it was, like, an online marketplace for people to buy anything they want, as long as it didn't... Like, the only rules were you can't harm people or you can't, like... 
you can't order people to get murdered or you can't, there's no human trafficking allowed, but it's, it was mainly used for drugs. So you could buy any kind of drugs that you wanted online and it was kept anonymous. Like each, all the buyers and sellers were protected because they used this form of currency called Bitcoin, which is a cryptocurrency. And it's, it's easily, you can easily keep the uh, people making the transactions anonymous. And he was just, created a website basically that anyone could go on there and make a transaction and he took a small fee and he ended up getting two life sentences because he didn't take the deal they they obviously offered him a really big um a really big plea deal and he didn't take it because they thought he could beat it and uh, there was a bunch of corrupt corrupt agents involved in his case and the kid got the kid got basically he got double the sentence that el chapo got and he was just some 20-year-old kid that made a website, an e-commerce website. That's, I mean, that story really hit home for me as far as exposing, like, the real issues of the judicial system in this country. And they, they made a documentary about it, and it's just disgusting. It's, it's just, sick. It's disgusting. It's vomiting sick on the floor. I mean, here I am. I served 33 years, mostly for marijuana. And I woke out in big billboards. Relax, we deliver your marijuana to your house. <laughs> it's just like in the Prohibition. Those guys got 12 years in Alcatraz for making whiskey. They went When they got out and, and the, the law was passed the next year, mm-hmm. yes, but you broke the law then. So right. you got to stay. And after 12 years, they walk out of Alcatraz and walk across the street and get them a drink out of the bar. Right. That's the same thing's happening It's now. insane, man. It's stupid. I mean, President Jimmy Carter had it all. Most of the prison, a great portion of the prison is from mentally inca- incapacitated or people that are, are somewhat have some problems. They had problems from probably their early childhood. Mm. They were unwanted, unloved, orphanage, foster home, beaten, abused, men and women, and they come to prisons, and they treat other people that way. We need help for these people. It's a health issue. It's a, it's a social issue. It's an issue that the society owes to the people that we have here is there any country that's doing it right like obviously we're doing it worse than anybody we have more people locked up per capita than any other country in the world right is that is there anybody who who's doing this right uh, same thing we could take from another country and learn from them i understand it Portugal. what's that My country, holland. oh holland 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 absolutely holland's great at it and and uh, oh didn't holland legalize like uh heroin or something I don't know exactly what they've that, done. Where you can you can go. I heard that you, that if you uh, if you're addicted to heroin or you want to if you want to use heroin, you can actually go to a doctor and they'll give you like a clean needle and they'll give you like a. Small oh yes, that's been a long time there, and uh, even Birmingham, England does it, and they got proof. Listen, the people clean up, the prostitutes clean up, the people get a job, but America goes into Birmingham and says you can't do that. You can't set a precedent like this. We must have our prisons full. Mm. So they fight so hard, the American judicial system, the DEA. They want, they want this stuff to go on. It's wrong. I mean, it's wrong in the eyes of man and God. It's just wrong. They take these people and, and take them away from their children, their families, and they take their homes. I mean, they work for forever. They inherited from their grandmother. They just, you better believe if there's some money in it, they're there to get it. So it's just wrong. Do you think it'll ever change? What, what, what do you think there's a... Of course it's going to change. It can't be. It's already swung hard the other way now. It's just got so. to. It's just, just 
Uh, what what's the answer? Like how what, like what kind of what sort of steps do you think it's it's gonna we're gonna have to take to make, make this be a health issue? If a guy's got a heroin addict, let's just say heroin addict, they know right now that they, this kratom, if they will take those tablets, they have no withdrawal whatsoever. But the D, uh, federal drug administration kratom. Kratom, yeah, yeah. I couldn't take. They, yeah. they fight it hard. They don't want it. Right. It's yeah. just like the marijuana oil, relieving yeah. all these pains. They don't want it. They fight it hard, and they pay their politicians. Right. They got lobbyists walking the halls of Congress. You get trips, and you get money, and you can do anything for you. We got but, big but, pharmaceutical companies that produce pills. Uh, we got Oxycontin. Oh. We got well, we got Vicodin. You got to go get go to the doctor and get a prescription to some opiates. Yeah, that's the answer. Yeah, not so, this unregulated stuff. Exactly. So they, it, but it's it's coming to light. It's slowly, slowly, slowly coming to light. It, uh, this is this is wrong. It is. It, it's 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 terrifying. And and then another thing is is parenting. I feel like parenting is is so important. And a lot of the people that end up in prisons, a lot of people that end up in the streets, homeless, addicted to drugs, it seems like the, the catalyst, the one thing, the most, the one common denominator across all these people is, is messed up childhoods and, and, and parents that weren't prepared for children. My mantra is that a couple should have a permit before they have a baby. That might be mean, but. A little sparrow builds her nest before she lays an egg. The problem is how the problem is you can't stop them from having babies, though, you right? You can't stop them, but you you have to permit have to have a permit to ride a moped on the streets of America. Right. How much more important it is to bring a child into it? My daughter, who's a doctor, she delivered a baby to an eleven year old child. Your daughter delivered a baby from eleven year old child. Four generations in the waiting room, all on welfare. Wow. Twelve, fourteen youngins. That's the problem is it, even if you put in a law like that, people are still going to breed. People are oh, still oh, going to have babies. I, I don't say they wouldn't, but I'm just saying that's the answer to it, to educate people or to, to encourage people to have a, a mother and a father, have a home, have a living, have a something. We get babies we want instead of babies that we're just going to get for the welfare check. That's awful to encourage yeah. the wrong people to have babies. It is. Should encourage the right people to have babies. I don't know the answers, Roger. I don't think we have them, but anyhow, that's the question now. Now gets the answer. It is a question. It's yeah. a very hard how question. You, how are you going to stop very, this? It's a very dicey. It's a very dicey subject, and it's it's. I don't know. I don't know what the answer is, but yeah, I totally agree that having a, you know having a child is definitely one of the most important, like serious decisions that you could possibly make i mean you're you're creating another life i mean that is going to set up depending on how you raise that small baby child depending on on how conscientious you are how prepared you are how willing you are to be committed to doing that i mean that's going to send that human being into a spiral one way or the other whether it be good or bad and the effects, the consequences, the repercussions of of it going wrong, of it going the bad way, are exponential. So it's just, yeah, I don't know the answers. <laughs> it's 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 a definitely a dicey topic because you can't take away people's human rights to reproduce, but at the same time, 
you know, I can, you know, it's the, the logic is, is obviously there. Like you can't just have people reproducing just because there's a financial gain or just for the hell of it, you know, let's have a kid and then, you know, it's on its own. Exactly. They, um, I don't know what to say about it, but they, there is an answer. I know that if the government would take this as a health issue, and part of it is being family planning, and spend a tenth of the money that they did on eradicating the marijuana from the country, right? What a world we would live in! Right, it's all about money, right? It's all and about money allocation. Schools and teach these children, tell right. them to educate. Them. Education is huge, right? What was it? Uh, Victor Hugo says, "No, it wasn't his." Uh, Close a school, open a prison. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. Because, I mean, there's so many stories of people who who had abusive childhoods, who had parents that, that weren't there. They were neglected all their lives. You, ha- you There's so many stories of, like, the biggest oh, success yeah. stories. They're people that had f- messed up childhoods, yes. right? And... <laughs> but it shouldn't be. Obviously, it's rare. It's rare. Not all kids that have messed up childhoods end no. up end up successful. But if they had the access, like if they, I, I think it puts on, like if you're, if you come up from an early stage in your life with lots of obstacles in your way, and you and you over, you're able to overcome a lot, and you have to deal with this. You don't have an, you have you have a very difficult life. It puts something in you, I think, that it makes you hungry, right? So I think if those people are hungry and they have access to get educated or to go learn or say, hey, it's not going to cost me, you know, I have to go out and figure out a way to make $100 this week. Am I either going to spend my $100 on food or drugs or am I going to spend my $100 on getting an education? They're obviously going to choose survival over education. So but if those kids had access to some sort of a free education and we took care of people who didn't have money, who actually wanted to learn and wanted to get better, that would be better for society, right? Because we would have in the country, we'd have, we would have less losers. We would have less people that are just, that are just leeching off the system. Does that it, make sense? It makes sense, but also you want to have people that are educated. You, you don't want to have, you, you want that. That's the goal. Like in our community exactly. as a country. Like you want to take care of, we want to think of the country as one community, as as unfortunate as, as it is. We think of people as right and left Democrat, Republican, whatever we want. It's so polarized. We, if we thought about it as one community and we want to educate our community to make it better, you want people to be, you want people to have the access to the education to get better. I'll tell you what, what for a son, maybe a daughter too. If they had a father to put their arm around him and say, son, you should study this or you should do this. I encourage you to do that. That's need that in, in 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 addition to the choice of where you're going to do that or another. You need good parents to make make recommendations, mm. and also you shouldn't put such high standards for college and that sort of stuff to everybody. Right? They should put. I mean, you know, you know, by seventh grade or eighth grade, whether a child's going to be uh, certain mm-hmm. university material or not. Mm-hmm. Start them in trade school, right? And our our prison system should be only trade schools. Yeah, you get a young thief comes in there, and the judge says, "Oh, they give him a rung." Said, "Okay, you could be an electrician. We need electricians. We need mm-hmm. plumbers. We need tank. okay." 
Your sentence is to become an electrician. When you get a Class A license to be an electrician, you walk out the door. Boy, you'd see them straighten up and stop taking the drugs and... Uh, and, and Right, and that way when they get out, they actually have a path. You go to work, $30, $50 an hour, whatever. And, I mean, it's not fair to the people out there, but if, if they do a crime, why just set them there just in a cell? Right. You can have one teacher to 20, 30 guys. Mm-hmm. And when they pass the test, and they can do it, let them loose. That's, that's their sentence. And we'd have workers. And the hardest thing also about, about the, whole, the whole prison system is that I've talked about this before, but once you're once you're in the system, it's almost like even once you're out, once you once you get released, it's almost like you have those shackles on you for life. Because there's things like probation, there's things like uh, restitution. You you know you're always checking in. There's only certain things you can do, certain things you can't do. If you do accidentally slip up once, bam, you're Back done. In. I had 30 years of that. They gave me 25 years special parole. Anytime you violate it, you can serve all or part. And on top of that, sir, I'm giving you 5,000 hours community service. You can do it shoveling horse shit in a zoo. And on top of that, you're going to pay all the cost of prosecution. And on top of that, I'm giving you 30 years for this, five more years for that. It's just ridiculous. How, what year did you get out? I got out last year. Last year you I'm got out. Not 14 months right now. Wow, man. Wow. I stayed in another nine months. It was harder than the 18 years in Australia in isolation here for a parole violation from 1977 for possession of marijuana that somebody was after me. They wouldn't let the lawyer talk, and they wouldn't let me out of isolation. So what happened after you were in that nine months isolation in Los Angeles? They let me out, and I went home. And you I were a free on, man. No, I was on parole, and I didn't know how long I'd be on parole. Mm. But you were at least you, you were I able was to home go home. With my wife and and, uh, and the COVID was out, and the parole officers didn't come, and so after a year, they said we dropped the parole. You're free. I got my passport. I got my driver's license. I got my pilot's license. Wow! <laughs> so I, I'm ready to go. Wow, man. What an incredible, fascinating story. So he went back and got my pilot's, uh, pilot's license and went, and went, to, went down and rented a plane for a day. I had a good time. So what's your goals now? What's, uh, what's, what's next for Roger Reeves? What's next on the, in the, uh, what's the next chapter for you? I just don't know what's going to I'm going to take it one day at a time. I'm just happy to be home with Mari. No more plane loads of marijuana. No, that's, <laughs> that's over. They got over-the-horizon radar. <laughs> oh, that's incredible. <clears throat> you and your wife, uh, the bond that you guys were able to form, and the, the, way, the, the way you guys were able to stay together yeah. for that long period of time, even though you were gone for 30, 33 yes. years, is, is just so amazing. I never heard of it. I've never heard of it. I've never heard of that. I mean, rare, it's rare you hear of that with people that don't didn't go to prison. Yeah. Let alone did have to be isolated for 33 years. It's just un, it's just unbelievable she waited that long. What is I the key? What what's the what's the what's the, secret? what's the secret? Tell me the secret. Well, she just a, she's a Christian person. She's lovely. I mean, she's just like too good for this earth. I said, <laughs> "What did you tell him, Mari? You're a beautiful woman." <laughs> she said, "I told him I'm not available." And said, "That worked." Yeah. So bless her heart. 
it waited on me all that time. I tell you, when I came home, there was the same table, a round oak table that I had sanded, and, and there was the same placemats that I had left 35 years ago, last thing. There was the same silverware and the same plates. I just sat there and cried. Just like, oh, just, just, it took me three days. I, I couldn't even look at pictures of her when she was 40 and when she was 50 and when she was 60. I wasn't there. Yeah. So it was. How did it make you feel? It made me feel sick. Mm-hmm. Still, I don't like to look at the pictures. Mm-mm. And I was gone that many years. Half of my life, I was in those prison cells. It just was, oh, maybe I certainly, I broke the law and I'm an outlaw, but I'm not much of a criminal. I don't. I don't mm. hurt nobody. I'm, I'm, I'm for good in this world. Just, uh, just got caught up in this and did it. Yeah. You know? And there were so many people like you too that got caught up in that in that part of history. You could you can pull up to almost any port in the world, and you just say to Rio and say, "I'm going to pay all of you a million dollars to haul this load of cocaine." We might get caught. You could sink the ship with young men and women to get on it. <laughs> so true, man. It would. It's so true. Yeah. <sighs> well, Roger, I think uh, I think we did it. I think we covered pretty much everything. Is there anything yeah. that we missed that's uh, important that we left out? World. I can't thank you enough for coming down. Mari's got a question about um, baby deer in Alaska. A baby deer in Alaska. Mari wants to bring up a baby deer. In, oh, what, what happened with the baby deer in Alaska? We can wrap it up with that story. Oh, that's just a whole other story in itself. <laughs> uh, we went to might not fit right in now. We, we it's okay. We can it. still tell it. All right. I'll tell let's the tell story it. about the baby deer. Let's tell it. We're, we're going to wrap it up with the baby deer story. All right. Mari and I went to Alaska in 1972 and bought a salmon trawler. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was an old um, sailboat. It was a Bristol Day gill netter. And somebody put a little gasoline engine in it, I think 38 feet. And we went salmon fishing with our little daughter, five years old. And, uh, Oh, we catch those great king salmon, put them in on the ice, and uh, we come into Goddard Hot Springs and anchor the boat in the evening sometimes and go for the hot spring and shower. Oh, it was nice, and the sharks would cut the salmon in two on the way up sometimes, and we'd hang the head up and get several stakes behind it. <laughs> and then uh, one day a little boy was crying on the radio that his boat was on fire, that he'd blown up, his daddy's legs was crooked, and... Blood was coming out of his ears, and help, help, help. And so pretty soon the Coast Guard was flying, and I said, what's strong where I was here? And, and uh, so they told us to be watching for an overturned boat or a uh, burned boat. Yeah. And I had the little boys' cries on, on my mind all day, and I was cleaning Shaman back on the back. And I turned and looked, and there was a bow of a boat coming up. I was almost to hit it. So I ran up out of the wheel, fish hole and knocked the boat out of gear and uh then i saw my mistake it was not a, it was not an overturned boat it was a giant blue whale that was surfacing under my boat and he blew his stuff all over me i could have gaffed him from where i was <laughs> that thing was huge anyway i had four cables out in there six thousand pound test each and he wrapped himself in those things or they got around him and he went down and that back of that boat went backwards faster, like a cork going backwards faster, and it never went forward. Jeez. They took all the gear off and all the stuff <clears> just <throat> bent down. My lifeboat and all that just splintered. So we was out of business. So we said, let's take a vacation. So we did all of southeast Alaska, just putting from one place to the other. And uh, we'd go into some of these bays that was just 
very seldom visited. And uh, we were looking for glass balls. The Orientals used to have glass blowers on their boots. Mm. And they didn't have corks, so they would put these glass balls, some of them that big, some this big, most of them about that big. And they would put floaters on the on the nets and in the storms and the rot. And they lost a lot of them. And they, uh, the uh, Pacific Ocean is 70 million square miles, and those things are drifting round and round out there. And in the storms of Alaska in the wintertime, some of them get caught up behind this the brush on the on the beaches. Mm-hmm. So Mari would walk one way and I'd walk the other. There's always a bunch of bears and I'd take a 44 and she'd take the uh, the rifle and we walked different places looking for the, those glass balls. And I came up to a big granite boulder at the end and a doe ran out. And behind her was a was a grizzly. And the grizzly, she turned around because she was kind of caught and he knocked her down in the surf. And I just thought, oh, you rascal. And I took my pistol and shot a bow. He stopped and looked at me, and then he looked and he loped on off. You shot the grizzly bear? No, I just shot in the shot air. Shot at him? Just shot in the air. And just okay. Scared Get out of here. Right. So I walked on up there, and there was a doe laying there, and the little waves lapping up. And I looked, oh, I saw why she was giving birth, and the little nose was sticking out. Oh, no. So I drug her out on the beach, and I took out a razor-sharp salmon knife with a spoon on the back, and I cut her open and took the little fawn out. I dried him off and put it down my coat sleeve. I had a red and white plaid coat. How big was he? He was about big as a cat. <laughs> <laughs> and long legs, though. And I put him down my coat sleeve, and I went down, Mari, what did you shoot? I said, I shot a grizzly. And she laughed. I said, put your hand down here. I'm not about to put my hand down your sleeve. Anyway, she did, and the little deer was just, just beautiful. And we took him and put him on the boat in a box on the boat, but he wouldn't eat anything and wouldn't drink any milk. So we said, well, he's going to die. Well, we had left our daughter a couple of days with some friends in Sitka, Alaska. And we went back, and she met us down at the beach, uh, on the dock. And when she saw the little deer, she held him. Oh, she was five years old. And he took her by the ear and started sucking, just like it was his mama. Mm -hmm. So we got a little baby doll bottle and put some milk in it, put it behind it, and it was running all down her ear and the milk. And he got to it, so we, we filled him up on milk. Anyway, the, we took him on. We had to put burlap on the boat so he could walk around. And we raised him for the next month or so that we was on the boat and going on vacation. And uh, so when we got ready to go back, uh, I was still on the fire department in Los Angeles. I'd taken a leave of absence. We had to go back. And what we do, we named him Flag after the little flag on his tail after Marjorie Walters, Walton's book, The, the Yearling. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, so I bought a big shopping bag with a zipper, and I put flag inside. Now then, he's about knee high, and he's rather spunky. So Mari has two bottles, and I put him on, walked on the plane, put him in the seat under the seat, my feet over him. And halfway down to Seattle, he gets to crying for his bottle. So the stewardess comes by, and Mari said, would you heat these, please? And she said, where's the baby? So I said, shall we show her? And he said, yes. So we zipped it up, and flag popped his head up. And, oh, all of them had to come look at him. And That's so Captain, funny. he says, I smuggled everything on my plane, but never a year. Well, you let my wife see this when he gets. So we did. So we took him on to Redondo Beach with us, and he got too big. He got where he could just jump six or eight feet high, and we was afraid he'd hurt our little girl. So we gave him some people up in Apple Valley that had a horse ranch. Mm. And he stayed up there, and we went to visit him. He had a huge rack of antlers on him. And an unusual deer because none, none in California like that. So we got a call one day, and they said, <clears throat> some dog scared Flag, and he jumped that eight-foot fence, and he got away. 
We said, all right. So the next year we saw an article in the newspaper that a strange deer, and they had picture of flag, was nuzzling some tourists in Angeles National Park. And they took him, and the rangers took him, and they took him to Santa Claus Village, where he spent the rest of his life in a petting zoo. Oh, my God. (laughs) One of Santa's reindeer. Yeah. Wow, what a story that is. Unbelievable. Roger, thank you again. Thank you. I appreciate you doing this. Uh, Tell people listening and watching where they can find your book. Find it on Amazon or Kindle. Smuggler by Roger Reeves. That's right. And I'll put a link in the uh, in the show notes below. Okay, good. It's cool. been a real pleasure. It's Thank been my you. My pleasure too, Roger. All right.